This is uh, Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Mr. Al Columbia. Al's been on once before, I guess it was three years ago, maybe? Does that sound right, three or four years ago? I'd say, yeah, about yeah, three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, since Al came on, he's had a whole bunch of comics, new comics published. I think when you were on, um, it was right before... Uh, or right when your first your stuff started appearing in Moam. And since then you had the uh, Pim and Francie collection come out, which is probably as about as much comics in that as you've had published, period, before that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, th- things have changed a little. Uh, we've met a couple of times, and um, I like you. I hope you like me. <laughs> yes, I like you very much. All right. Uh, so we'll jump into it. Um, kind of the purpose I was saying before we started recording was to kind of get a bigger look at who you are and kind of discuss what's gone into creating your work um, and some of that was covered I noticed in that interview you did with uh, Nicole Rudick was that her name um, mm-hmm. on the Comics Comics one and so we may cover some similar territory uh, but I'm not the same interviewer so you know I'll respond. Yeah, no. To, to, to yeah, fair enough. Things. Um, and I guess I kind of, starting off with, looking at your work right now, I feel with the Pim and Francie book, it's so linked to childhood. Um, is it, how representative of yourself in childhood is it? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, You know, I'm not sure. It might, you know, I might spend a whole interview just thinking about it, <laughs> not say anything. <laughs> um, I suppose to a fair degree, certain certain parts of the book are uh, stem back to childhood or memories I have that I can't tell or dream, dreams I might have had when I was younger, or or for a while I couldn't tell. There were certain memories I had that I couldn't tell. You know, for the longest time I couldn't tell. Was that a nightmare I had when I was a kid, or so like all the memories I have as a, as a young child are all fragmented, disconnected, and you know there's all these gaps of mystery and these black spots. And I guess I, for a while I started to figure out what, what were in those black spots, you know, black spots. And so I talked to my parents about like, all right, well, did this happen? Did that happen? And they kind of look away, like they want to talk about it. So it made me more curious. And so I, I, over the years, I did start to discover there were certain things that I don't remember at all that did happen that were pretty uh, intense or weird, and um, and I'm okay with that, you know. Um, uh, but uh, I don't know how much of the book itself comes stems from childhood nightmares, so much it's like adult nightmares, you know, things I've gone through as an adult, really. Mm-hmm. And sort of, it was a weird thing where you, you're kind of like drawing yourself as a little kid just because it maybe made the adult horrors easier to deal with. I, I think m- more of the book is about things I've gone through as an adult, I think, than as a child. I think a lot of that stuff, uh, childhood memory, um, dreams, memories, that that's more um, something I work on um, outside of Tim and Francie, r- really, I think, which is, I guess, kind of weird. I never thought of that. But there are definitely elements in the story that do go back to childhood, but not that many. Like, the beginning of the book definitely reminds me a lot of uh, um, certain memories I have, I should say, or, or certain feelings of, of, of uh, I have uh, about, uh, you know, early, early childhood um tell me about growing up did you have siblings 
Were other folks no. in your family drawing? Were other folks in my family drawing? Yeah. No, no. I was uh, uh, just a single kid, you know, a single child. <laughs> um, my my mother and father were more or less kind of whatever broke up, uh, divorced. When I was very young, like I, I think I was only like a year old, and my dad remarried. And I, I've gone through a lot of marriages with my with my folks. They both been married quite a few n- number of times and uh sort of uh you know you know new, new stepmom of the, of the year kind of thing and our new stepdad or this or that and so you get you really used to that after a while uh, as you get older you just you know it's like oh you're gonna go to my wedding now i'll go to the next one or whatever you know you're just kind of like and you're just constantly intro- reintroduced to these sort of like uh, maternal or paternal figures um that you don't really you like because it shakes it up now when i was younger i liked that i liked when there were new adults in my life because it's just like oh great this isn't my mom this is like you tend to like people who aren't your parents more almost you know um or you like hanging out with them because it just there isn't that uh i don't know bond of blood that can sometimes uh, aggravate you, you know there's just there's just certain yeah. characteristics you, you know what i mean there are patterns you fall into with you know your your blood family that they'll hurt you more than somebody else might like a stranger would hurt you less than your own family sometimes or vice versa so uh, there's less of that baggage yeah, so I was lucky in a way where I almost feel like I was orphaned or something because I really I didn't really grow up with my mother or father, uh, really. I mean, I, I lived with them here and there, um, but I didn't really grow up with them. They didn't really raise me. So I, was, I feel lucky, really. And, and, you know, I couldn't imagine what I would turn out if my parents actually raised me. Were you raised? You know what I mean? I, I think I'd be, I don't know. I mean, I've seen and I saw enough, so or I, I lived through enough with my folks when I did live with them where it was, you know, it wasn't necessarily the happiest of times, or uh, the, I mean, or it was it was happy in certain ways, but not because of uh, you know. There's definitely no no um, traditional family life. I, I really didn't grow up in a very traditional, or uh, I look back on it, definitely not um, normal childhood. Were you um, raised by your grandparents? No, I wasn't even raised by my grandparents. I wasn't even raised by a family member at all. Uh, I was raised by a woman, uh, my first stepmother, actually. I kind of stayed with her um, until I was about 12, I'd say. Then I, then I went to live with my dad for maybe four years, or, yeah, about four years. And then, and then I um, turned 17, and my grandparents kind of gave me their, their house here in Connecticut to live in because they lived in Florida. So, you know, I've very, very uh, brief uh, living experiences with my own family I should say mm-hmm. you know so when I was turned 17 I, I, I just kind of lived alone I was alone I, uh, I just I had this house to live in I didn't have to take care of bills and and they were like okay well, go draw your comics they'd say and <laughs> you know and, and I'd make a, I'd just destroy the house I wouldn't do dishes I'd stuff them in suitcases put them in the basement uh, instead of doing you know just I have no no you know I had no sense of responsibility at all all I did was do artwork and draw and play music or hang out with my friends and snort riddlins and you know, <laughs> just be retarded, you know what I mean? And uh, just, uh, that's about it, you know, and, and I did that for many years, not not that specifically, but I, I've been in this house in one way or another um, for for a long time, and, you know, taking off here and there to sort of, uh, I'd say, all right, that's it, I'm moving forever, I'm going to California, and I go to California for a year, and I come back, or I go somewhere else for a couple months, that sort of thing, so I've come more or less always been here ever since then. What is it about... Um, your hometown that keeps pulling you back other than the the house um well 
one thing is just I feel more most comfortable here. I suppose it's like sort of your native soil. You know, you you have history here. People know you, and um, allow for for certain things that you wouldn't get away with necessarily somewhere else. I find when I live in a city or I live anywhere else, I'm always having to be on. There's always this uh, quality to it I don't like. Um, you, you really can't put down roots. I, I really can't stay anywhere because it just doesn't feel like home. Um, and, you know, I knew I wanted to get the hell out of here really quick when I was when I was here, uh, when I was young. I mean, after a few years of being in this house alone and stuff, I was just like, oh, geez, I, I really want to get out of here. And, and I did, but I, you know, but as I started coming back over the years, the town just started to decay. I mean, the the big factory here in town that employed everybody just shut down, and the whole town just went went dark, you know. And and uh, now that appeals to me. Now it's just it's kind of like these ancient ruins around here. It's uh, I definitely noticed that from from when I visited you. Um, it's definitely gonna feel um, this kind of sense of like better times before. Definitely. <laughs> it used to be, uh, you know, quite the little Mayberry town. Just yeah. this perfect little, you know, like 30,000 people, and everyone was employed and happy, and there was this, you know, it was a pretty sophisticated uh, downtown, you know, like hip stores, and it, it was it was a nice place to live for a long time, I'm sure, for very many people, but now it's just uh, a like a third world country meth. or something, you know? A lot of people Lots are crystal of kids, meth are, Well, I'm sorry? A lot of crystal meth there, probably? Um, A lot of heroin and uh, stuff like that. I don't think you can... I mean, I could pretty much, if I wanted, just right now, send somebody out to get whatever I wanted, if that were the case. And uh, yeah. except crystal meth, damn it, I can't find that anywhere. <laughs> so, no, you bring up a, a sore subject with me. Okay. So. <laughs> um, that that seems to be a knack of mine. Um, let's let's get <laughs> no. back to uh, a bit of the 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 pastor then. Um, did you go to high school? Um, like, did you have much artistic training? When you were a teenager, I I figured you didn't go to to art school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I didn't really have any training. I just was obsessed with with it, and and I had been my whole life. I just moved a lot, or I moved around a lot. I guess when I was growing up, uh, lived in a lot of different places, and I just kind of always had a suitcase and a pad and a pencil, and that's kind of. And mainly how I am now. Um, it was just a way to escape everything, I suppose. Or I, I don't know what it was. I just knew that's what I wanted to do from a really young age. I was just like, all right, that's it. I'm just going to be an artist. I'm going to write stories. And so I just you know, came in contact with comic books and, you know, cartoons and TV. I was like, that's what I want to do. And God, those guys must be so cool, you know. <laughs> and and uh, we do that stuff, you know. Um, and you just become infatuated with one different artist after another, after another, after another, and you discover, you know, you, you go from like the Teen Titans, and you go to, you know, maybe like Frank Miller's Ronin, and and that'll take you to something like all of a sudden, I, you know, there was a comic shop in town, so I was exposed to a lot more stuff, and then I very quickly discovered all the cool stuff, I guess, or I'd like to think so, but you know, once it's there, you know, you go for the dope stuff. You just go for the good stuff, you know. But if it's not there, you just take what you can get. And for yeah. when I was growing up, I didn't know. I, I would see, you know, we had a head shop here in town, so I would always see, like, Robert Crumb comics. I'd always see uh, the Raw in the bookstore, but they always kind of um, freaked me out, that lifestyle, you know. <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, God, you know. You know, I can't read these comics. Or they seemed interesting, but at the same time, I knew they were so very adult, and it seemed so, you know, kind of like these weird perversions of what I actually did like being a little kid, you know. Um, I couldn't handle seeing Richie Rich 
doing something he wasn't supposed to do or, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I couldn't, um, you know, uh, so I was like, oh, this is terrible. How can they do this? And um, as far as Raw or anything, like Art Spiegelman, you know, uh, at that point, I think when I was young, there were those collections. I remember, I think I saw some of the issues, but I mostly saw the collections of the, the, the issues in the, in the bookstores. And I remember thinking at the time, like, um, something to the effect of, oh, this is, this is, this is so arty. I can't stand it. You know, or something like that. But of course, now I love it. But back then, my first instinct was like, again, I don't understand this. It seems like it's maybe trying too hard to be uh, make comics something they're not, or it, yeah. maybe it's trying too hard. You know, I mean, that was my, as a kid, I thought that. But of course, I don't know why I don't still think that. But I guess it's sort of like with Robert Crumb. I but I discovered I, I put off really studying that or uh, Harvey Kurtzman for a long time because I just felt like. Uh, it's sort of like watching Citizen Kane. Everyone's saying how you hear a lot about it, but you don't really want to watch it because you don't want to be disappointed or you don't want to walk away thinking everyone's nuts. Or, um, but when I discovered that stuff, when it clicks with you, it you know it, you know something goes off and you you're like, oh, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Or you know, it takes people you know certain things I hated when I was a kid I love now. So you never know what you're gonna like. You can never be too uh, fascist about things. You're gonna change your mind sooner or later. You know. Who is uh, an artist that really clicked with you that made you go? Okay, this like you get it. Oh, um well definitely um hmm, a lot of artists really I think. Uh, the guy who really like flipped me out was Harvey Kurtzman when I really uh because when I was a kid I remember seeing those mad magazine covers when they reprint them. And there was that one with the the guy with the cane and there's a shadow of a vampire on the wall and I remember it just it I was obsessed with that forever. They wouldn't let me buy the magazine. You know, my parents were like, No, you can't buy the mad magazine, you know. And so I was really pissed. I was asking kids at school to get their parents to buy it for me. And I really wanted that cover that Kurtzman did. I didn't know who he was, but later in life I saw it again and realized it was Harvey Kurtzman. I was and so, you know, that connection was already there. And I uh, really, really studied him at I guess at the right time in life. I'm glad I put it off and sort of studying what he'd done. That guy's just sort of flesh-born to do comics, you know, and just the timing and everything about what he does really blew me away. Yeah, that, that really connected with me somehow in Will Elder's work. And um, So were comics a really primal activity for you? A primal? Like it's just um, something immediate that with the creation of it as a, as a youngster? Hmm. Yeah, I would say so. It, I would draw a lot of comics when I was... Uh, a kid, but they were always very violent, and they always involved a cat and a mouse. Uh, you know, <laughs> the cat just destroying the, the life of the, the the family life of the mouse. You know, just murdering the fa- you know the, the the entire family. You know, uh, or this or that. They're always very violent, and um, uh, I'm not sure why I like like doing comics. It just seems like you do one picture, why not do another one and another one, and you could tell a story that way. And I was always trying to get better at it, and um, really always obsessed over certain artists and tried to figure out how they did what they did. I just don't remember a time I wasn't drawing comics. I just don't. Um, it seems like it's been my whole life, you know? Um, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but I'm curious about how you met Bill Sinkevich and kind of how that affected your own artistic process. Oh, well, no, I don't mind talking about that. I, uh... Actually, I'd been a huge fan of Bill's in high school, or I had just discovered his stuff. So, you know, imagine being like, you know, 15, 16, and you're just discovering this Electra Assassin comic that you'd seen in, in the stores are always kind of like, where did you out because of yeah. the artwork. You know, you're like, oh, what's this? 
guy with a pitchfork and the funny hair and the Robert Smith hair and the weird little blue creature. And you're like, this seems cool, but it seems really disturbing. And, and I, you know, that, I guess, Bill was also an artist that, like, maybe I resisted for a long time because it was so quirky and strange for my young mind. And then when he clicked with me, he really clicked with me. I remember becoming very obsessed with his artwork. Um, and, well, the weird thing is, you know, about you know, a couple of years later, I ended up meeting him through my cousin who sold Xerox machines. Um, he just happened to sell a Xerox machine to Stan Drake, who drew, drew Blondie, uh, Dagwood and Blondie, you know, or was the new artist on that, or had been for many years. And uh, my cousin's idea was to introduce me to him because he knew I was a young kid who wanted to do that. And he said, well, why don't you come to Westport, Connecticut, and meet Stan Drake, and maybe he can uh, I'll give you some pointers, or maybe he'll, maybe he'll let you draw the squares, you know, the boxes. That was the big thing. I was going to get to draw the boxes, you know. <laughs> I was so psyched. Oh, my God, I'm going to get a ruler out. I'm going to get a rapidograph. I'm going to draw the boxes of blonde bo-. You know, I was, I was out of my mind. I thought it was the greatest thing. So Were you we using a rapidograph when you were a teenager? Um, yeah, I didn't know there, were, there was such a thing as like using a brush. You know, I didn't know. Well, I used mostly Croquil. I learned how to use a Croquil pen when I was really young because I just thought that's what they used. So I forced myself to use it in ways I suppose that weren't you know <laughs> you weren't supposed to. And um, I didn't know what they used in comics. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what kind of tools. So yeah, well, I didn't. I, I suppose I used a rapidograph more like after uh, high school. Um, uh, for some design purposes or something. Somebody introduced me to them. I thought they were cool, but only for a limited yeah. time. Anyway, that's that's the big story about the rapidograph. Uh, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> they... Uh, uh, now, so we went down to Westport. I did meet Stan Drake, and uh, we went out to lunch with him, and he starts talking about this Bill Sienkiewicz, and uh said, oh, you know Bill Sienkiewicz. I think it's the only thing I said to him the whole time. I didn't know, you know. Yeah. He said, oh, yeah, you want to meet him. So we went back to his studio, and Bill happened to have a studio on the same floor. And I met Bill, and I don't know, about a week, I showed him my stuff, I had my portfolio, which was mostly just, you know, direct, you know, uh, rip-offs of stuff he had done. <laughs> like, literally, like, I would copy the panels and paint them as best I could, like he did. And so here's this kid shows up with, like, basically his paintings and, a, you know, these imitations. You know, so he just, I don't know, I don't know why to this day Bill thought to do this, but he just called me a week later and asked me if I wanted to, you know, be his assistant, and uh, that was it. I don't remember anything after that, you know, or before that in a way. Like, I've I, I, I been, you know, that was my, um, I guess, uh, uh, my entrance to con- the comics world or people in comics, and mm-hmm. um, and so I went and, you know, I said, sure, I went and worked for Bill and, you know, learned a lot. I learned a lot working for him, a lot of uh, stuff to this day I know a lot of other artists don't even know about or don't use these real real sorcery tricks. I mean, he, he knew a lot of that stuff, like stuff he would invent himself, weird techniques that you just sort of, it wasn't so much he would, he wouldn't really show me stuff, it's just a vibe, you know, a feeling in the air, um, in a studio, it just had a charge to it, and you felt very creative when you were there, and you felt like you could do things you couldn't do elsewhere, and he had a real intense energy, he was a very intense guy. Yeah. And, uh, very complicated, and, uh, very, uh, you know, um, very good guy, I would say. Um, but, you know, and very much like me in many ways, but needlessly would complicate things for himself. Or, you know, and like I, and I do that to this day. So, I, you know, we're very, I think, very similar in some ways and very different in others. And there's a reason I met him, I suppose. You know, yeah. there's a reason he was the guy I, you know, kind of had to, uh, uh, you know, where I apprenticed for. It was, I was very, it was very much a sorcerer's apprentice sort of thing. You know, I definitely got all the broomsticks going and out of my control. I, uh, you know, definitely, definitely picked up the wand and shouldn't have. So a few times. Um, 
had you done any painting before that? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I had um, been doing a lot of watercolor stuff, you know, through high school. And, yeah, so I was already, like, painting a lot. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was very much influenced by all those painter guys from back in, I suppose, the 80s, what was it? Um, Kent Williams, who I still think is just, like, one of the... He's just a great cartoonist and a great uh, painter. I just really, really love Kent Williams' stuff even this day. He's just a... He's a real deal. And uh, I'm not so sure about everyone else in that group. Um, he's the one that still sticks out. Uh, the other stuff just doesn't, I don't know, it just seems silly, or I, I don't know, I just can't see making a comic out of, of that stuff anymore, in, in that way, but at the time, it, it it just had its moment or something, it just seemed like yeah. some cool stuff, you know, I mean, for time, or something, but it, a lot of it doesn't, to me, hold up now, you know, I should say, outside of uh, Kent's stuff, I don't know yeah. why, um, Bill's, Bill's, a lot of Bill's stuff, um, I thought, like, the best stuff he was gonna, he was gonna do, like, he had a lot of great ideas for, uh, He's a really good writer, and he had all these really great ideas. I don't, you know, that, that I'd be working on him. You know, I mean, I'm not sure why, you know, uh, they never, never came about. But you know, I'm no one to talk. So, um. <laughs> now, the the whole big numbers thing. Um, how old were you when that started out? When it started up, um, well, I was 18. Okay. When I suppose I met Bill, and you know, about a year, I had you know kind of worked with him, worked you know a little bit on the uh, the issues, but the first two issues with him, I mean that was it. That was all I ever had anything to do with. I had the fourth one, which I did later. Um, I was like 18, and I worked with him for about a year, and I don't know, a little while after that, I had met Kevin Eastman, and he called me up or wrote to me. I can't remember, and asked me if I wanted to take over the the project, Big Numbers, with Alan Moore, which I didn't understand because I thought Bill was doing it still, and. And I hadn't had any contact with Bill for a while, so. Um, and you had already done Dog-Headed Boy. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a lot of that stuff I had done. Uh, a lot of stuff in Dog-Head, that book was done, like, kind of in my senior year in high school, and also, like, while I was working for Bill, it was just, so it was very influenced by Bill Sienkiewicz, which, you know, it, it could be worse influences. I, I think uh, um, I was happy with the sort of what I was able to do, but I, I remember when it was published, I could have, like, committed suicide. I just didn't realize anyone would actually see it, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, yeah. oh, I'm really happy with this, and it's just like, in some level, like, uh, you know, I was able to get certain obsessions out, or whatever obsessions you can have when you're 18 and or 19, and, uh, but uh, yeah, it, it taught me a lot about, um, a lot of stuff. I mean, like, just in the, you know, getting it published and all that. It shouldn't have really been published. It's one of those you know, freak occurrences where somebody said, uh, you know, put money into something that's clearly, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, putting on this lavish book by like, you know, a 20 year old kid, uh, highly, you know, I mean, I, it was more, I think they want to do it to sort of say, Hey, here's uh look, don't worry. Whoever, this guy who's seen your big numbers can kind of do this sort of thing, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, um, yeah. Did so, you, um, were you able, as far as the artwork within big numbers, um, were you kind of sticking, did you stick stylistically to what Bill was doing, or was it your own thing with well, it? Well, I wasn't, you know, I suppose the uh, the issue of the style of big numbers became confusing because the, the third issue had changed, so, you know, the third issue was different um, than the first two. It was more cartoony and... I thought cooler. I thought Bill did with the third issue. It was way cooler than, the, like, what he did with the first two. I just you could see how that would drag you down. Uh, painting everything, and um, but yeah, I, I don't even suppose there was. It was the idea was to, was there for there to almost be no style at all. It was like uh, 
uh, if, if I remember correctly, the paintings were very photorealistic, very uh, cinematic, and um, very conservative and restrained, um, with the exception of all the sort of scratching and all the other sort of flourishes that he would put in later um, to sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, loosen up the stat- static quality of the images. Um, that was one thing that I could tell looked like Bill's stuff to me was what he would do to destroy the, the painting after he, <laughs> after he... I was like, all right, that's, that's definitely... It was almost like uh, that's the trademark. That's, that's what makes it... You know, because the rest of the paintings were just these really, really uh, restrained, very uh, photographic images. I mean, anyone could have done them if they had that certain uh, skill. You, you, you yeah. know what I'm saying? It didn't, it didn't really panache. speak of, of... Certain parts of the book did, but I really... I liked it, but I also thought like it, it's some combination between that and the more cartoony third issue. Anyway, I'm taking a long time to answer your question. The no um, the fourth one, fourth issue, they wanted back in the style of the first two, which I was happy to do when I was 18. But by the time, or not 18, but you know, however old I was, 19 or 20, you know, around that age, I was happy to do it when they asked me to do it. But by the time it really started up, by the time they settled everything with everybody, and by the time this and that, I, I was just. I was like, why did I even, and it, you know, it was about a year later or something, or a couple of years later that we actually got started on it. So by that point, I had already, you know, lost, just completely lost interest in, in doing it, you know, um, but I felt, you know, oh God, you know, I got myself into this. And um, so I did do the fourth issue and it took me a while, it took me a long while to do it. Um, did, did you do with any it. photo reference at all, or? Yeah, I sure did. And Bill had used. I think he goes on, goes on to talk about that recently. I, I saw that he had posted something. Mm-hmm. That's one of about... the reasons I was curious. He he really goes in depth and how he had like particular models for different characters and. Yeah, it was probably maybe a movie. Really, I remember he'd have them all come over. Or we'd go over and do these great big photo shoots and. You know, there are like 40 people, 40 characters, so he had a lot of people in this, and it's hard to keep track of all those people, their lives do change, and this is something that doesn't allow for that, really, and you, you also think you're going to get done in a certain amount of time, a reasonable amount of time, so you're thinking, all right, for the next couple of years, can you be this character and the model for me, and um, I don't think, I, I guess the mistake was relying on that too much, because then you're screwed if you, you know, you, they, they take off, or, um, or you have to reuse old, postures and facial expressions or but you can also lose in a lot of ways your ability you know your sense of drawing when you're doing that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. you you know you, become, you can be not become a slave but become petrified by it become uh you know you're looking at a photograph you're doing this sort of photographic work and you need to change an expression but you don't have a photograph of the person so you have to kind of fake it and it's really hard to do when you've locked yourself into that sort of thing you really do need another photograph you really do need to uh, keep it going that way. So for me, I ended up having to get 40 new people that looked like the people he used, and I did. I hunted them down. I found like almost every single character, like like the, their their body doubles, yeah. but in a different town entirely. And, uh, and I thought that was a huge accomplishment. That I was able to find people that looked like the people he used. But did all the photo shoots. But in a lot of ways, that's what you know. Doing that can teach you how to direct, and in a lot of ways, how to um, set up scenes and. So, yeah, I remember doing that sort of thing taught me a lot that maybe came in handy later with me, that I would, you know what I mean? That's how it always is. You just kind of learn something or you do something, and then you're not sure what it's for or what you're going to need it for or what you'll use it for until later. So something really hits you or, you know, inspires you, whatever, you know. Um, do you want to 
talk about what happened with the end of that at all? Oh, like sure, yeah, should, yeah. Like I don't re- remember everything. Uh, what happened? There, it seemed like it was it was already at the end when I started. It already seemed kind of had this uh, shadow over it, or this uh, kind of a. Uh, you know, it was still standing up and walking around, but it was about to fall. You know, you just had this, yeah. this kind of ominous sense that, and you'd hear talk too. I remember before I even started, like whether or not it was even gonna go forward. Even though they had hired me and stuff like that, I would hear this sort of ominous, uh, you know, whispers of like, "Oh well, you know, this is just cost too much money. This is, you, well, you know, know, it's likely they're not even gonna finish publishing it." And so I, that was that had a lot to do with me saying, "Ah, you know, fuck this. I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. <laughs> this is a nightmare. You know, it's not even, they're not even gonna publish it. Why would I want to do it? You know." I know so, um, Baron's story. He published. He had one of his books published, and he basically had to fight for them to actually publish it. They paid him for it, and he. They'd like, ah, it's going to cost us too much to print it, so we're not going to print it. And he's like, well, you agreed to print it. You have a contract. You got to print it. Right. Or is that well, not sad? I had about like a my contract for big numbers was the what I learned later. They it was like one page or something. It was a, or two pages, like a work for hire contract, which was kind of funny because that was not what apparently that company was supposed to be about, and um, it didn't. Say I had to turn in the artwork. <laughs> you know, it was just like they just assumed I was so over the, the the moon to do this, I would never back out. And so they kind of drafted this contract that later a lot of cartoon or artists uh, were telling me uh, that's how I started smoking, going over the contract in London with uh, James O'Barr who did the crow. He said, "Man, they're really gonna you're fucked. Don't even just." But at the same time, he pointed out, "Well, you don't have to. You can back out of this, and they can't do anything, mm-hmm. and you can." not hand in the artwork and they can't do anything. There's no, nothing in there to say you must do this or this. Or It was just this really weird contract. I just assumed, uh, you know, it almost spoke. It was like it was speaking to a little kid or something. It was like, uh, you're, you know, this is the most awesome thing you're ever going to do. So, so I, you know, uh, it was a strange contract. It, I think they, they, they made it especially for me. Uh, and it, it didn't think all the way through when they did it. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't even. It was. It was like they had to make a contract of some kind. Um, I remember being surprised at how weird it was, or how many people were saying it was. Just, you know, who read it or looked it over for me, uh, said it was odd. But of course, I had already signed it. So, you know, I don't think I read a single contract I signed back then. No. Well, you were a young guy. I mean, there. You probably had a certain amount of. Um, hey, I can trust these guys. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. They they're always smiling. You know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they, you know, great big smiling adults who want to give you lots of money. Yeah, why not? Um, There's something uh, that that follows through in your work of that sinister smile, a vacant smile almost. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what that is. It's it, there's a vacancy to it and a malice to it, but there's also a warmth and a certain amount of knowledge uh, that it, it, it's a question mark. Really, it's kind yeah. of an, an enigmatic smile it's I, I i don't i still don't know what it is but it, but it has a, a a sustenance there's there's something about it to me that means something i don't know what it is but it, i can it resonates very deeply with me it's probably possibly one of the most you know or resonates probably deeper than most images somehow and, and it obsessed me for a long time and i don't even know where it came from i don't know why i started drawing it and uh um you know i try not to draw it too much <laughs> but it's <laughs> You know, just you know, going insane. You know, just the guy who went crazy and drew drew, drew that face all the time. Um, 
<laughs> but you know, people who don't know what that kind—it's a very ancient thing too. And it's, um, but then, you know, I, you know, coming up, you, you know, you hang out with, uh, you know, you hang out with uh, people like Chris Ware, or Dan Cause, you talk to them on the phone, and they'll just their, I think, knowledge of that sort of thing is limited. So, so to them, it just looked like a Jack Nicholson face, which they always you know, kind of break my balls about. They'd be like, oh yeah. You know, uh, that's a Jack Nicholson face. I'm like, well, you know, I guess so, but I'm not really into the guy, you know. So it's it's funny. Uh, it's a strange face, and it's also, the you know, the Joker, I guess, kind of wears that face in Batman. But that's not what occurred to me when I would draw that. It wasn't anything to do with that stuff. Um, yeah. It just meant something to me, something ancient. I, I like or like to feel that what we go through now isn't that unlike people went through, you know, a long time ago. It's... You know what I mean? But at the same time, there's uh, there's something about objects or cursed objects or, or images uh, that appeal to me or something, uh, antiquity, ancient stuff. Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I want to be an archaeologist when I was a kid. Uh, so I guess that sort of thing's always been there for me. But uh, I guess in some ways I am, but you know, I'm not thinking of bones. But... Um, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, um, I, don't, I, you know, I think I think I babbled that one out. Anyway, <laughs> that's all right. Um, yeah. Just to kind of finish off with big numbers, mm-hmm. what did happen to the artwork? Um. Well, <laughs> well, this is just funny because at this answer. point I had already apparently torn it up, and I oh no no actually no this is how what happened okay this is exactly what happened. Um, I was roommates with all the guys in the, this band called uh, Sabado, which were pretty evilly large back in the day. The, the, yeah. um, Lou Barlow, Eric Gaffney, and Jason Lawrence, they were all hanging out, and they were, uh, Eric Gaffney was going to have this single, this like, you know, little split single with somebody, and he wanted artwork for it, and um, he wanted me to do something, and he was big in collages and stuff like that, and we got the idea that I would chop up all this big numbers artwork and make a collage out of it for his album cover. I don't know how I got the idea, but I just hate, I just I didn't want anything to do with it. I'd already quit it, or I was going to. I knew I wasn't gonna have anything to do with it, and so we put every page on a chopping block, one of those big slicers, and I just chopped it up madly, like like for about a half hour, I just sliced the whole thing up with a chopper. And Mark Arsenault, who's uh, uh, the wild cool guy, I don't know if anyone knows who he is. He, he's uh, the, the mini zine guy. He was a good friend of mine. He came over and just looked horrified. He stood in the doorway and watched me chopping up all the artwork. And uh, just went, oh my god! And, and I think he must have told somebody I'd done it, and that's how that got started. But I think even before that, there was something to that effect. That might have even been what influenced me to do it. Well, they're saying I'm, I did this, I might as well. Uh, I can't remember though. But it wasn't like, oh my god, I'm going to flip out. You know, I can't stand this. Or it wasn't this breakdown. It was just like, oh, this will make a cool record cover. That's are it. They, that's all it was. Yeah. Are they artifacts just lost come... to time? Yeah, I thought it'd be neat to chop up all this boring artwork and kind of uh, make something interesting out of it because I could not stand the way it looked. I couldn't stand the project. You know, I, it was just the, the, the you know bunch of black figures playing out some. I don't know. I guess it would have been brilliant. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't ever give anyone that much credit. I don't care how good a writer you are. I don't care. It's not. It's, you're going to say, okay, this is my magnum opus, and this is going to be the Citizen Kane of, of comics, then you, you're, you're going to screw yourself. It's kind of like a jinx. It's like you can't really be talking that way before you put out something. You can't buy into yourself that hard. Yeah. I think a lot of big numbers was that. It was just this idea that Alan Moore is this infallible writer who can, you know, that this was his magnum opus, and he was saying, because that he was telling people that. People weren't saying that. He was telling people that. 
so everyone believed him. Well, if Alan says this is going to be his magnum opus, it must be. And maybe it wasn't going to be. Maybe it would have been the worst thing he ever did. You never know. You know what I mean? There's, uh, you know, I, I, I know that I got real bored with it quick, and whatever cleverness of it might have been too clever. Um, let's just say something doesn't work out for me, I always kind of melt it in something else. I don't get too attached to things being magnum opuses. I don't know. I just can't. I just, it just seems exhausting to think that way or to go around talking that way even. It's just, it just seems, I don't know, a little weird to me. I, I just, you know, life will kick your ass anyway. Don't do it to yourself, <laughs> you know. Where were you living at the time? Was this the I was coast? living in Northampton, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. And oh, that's right, then, yeah, Northampton, Northampton. Then I came back to Connecticut after all that sort of happened. It was just ridiculous. It, um, I, I really didn't feel comfortable being in Northampton anymore because I'd always bump into... Uh, uh, all the people from uh, Tundra Publishing, and you know, they're this great big coven of witches that were just very menacing and strange. And I, I, I just didn't, uh, I, I couldn't see, you know, having to have some sort of nervous experience just going to get smoked or something. So I, um, but I think a lot of things were going on at the time, and I just thought, all right, well, I'm done with this place. I'll just go home. You know, so that's what I did. It, how did you take a break from drawing at all? Um... Did, or did you just no no I I was at that point I was already doing the biologic show you know even you know while I was sort of doing big numbers I was also uh, working on the biologic show which I guess just captivated me more uh, not that I think it's the greatest thing I ever did but you know it was just I was really obsessed with it it just seemed r really fun to do or I was discovering a lot and so I just kind of came back here and uh, um, you know back to the hometown and you know moved back into this this house, this vacant house, and just set up, and, you know, I don't know, I lived on thin air, I don't, I don't remember eating or anything, I, I just remember drawing all the time, and, uh, and that's what I did, I just got straight into the other, the other stuff, I didn't even, I didn't really look back, or, because I didn't really think I had done anything wrong, so I just wasn't going to worry about it, uh, you know, I just wanted to move forward. Now, but with I'm, Biologic uh, Show, you pitched that to Fenographics, I seem to remember something about just Kim was more than happy to have that just to piss off Tundra or something? <laughs> maybe so, maybe <laughs> so. Uh, uh, yeah, something in effect, I, I know he liked I sent him, um, yeah, I think all of the first Biolive show and then the second one I put out, or Zero and One, I sent him, I think, half of, like one and a half comics worth of stuff that really wasn't quite done, but gave him an idea. And um, I guess aside from pissing people off, I guess he, he must have seen there was some potential there. Um, and yeah, I was actually really psyched that uh, you know, it was, it was actually kind of anticlimactic. I think I called him. I mean, I don't know the balls I have. I mean, I'm calling Kim Thompson. He doesn't. I've never talked to him in my life. I say, hey, hey, you know, I'm Al Columbia. You want? And I want to see some comics. I did. He's like, sure, send them. I mean, but it was weird that I would call him. A uh, strange thing to do. I don't know. Uh, and I sent it to him. He sent me a letter, and that was it. And uh, I was very happy because I used to love their catalogs and uh, and. Uh, Mm -hmm. it was, I think more than anything, maybe he wanted to piss off Tundra. I just wanted to do something cool that would be a fanographics catalog because their catalogs are so awesome looking, you know. And uh, you know, I just, uh, I don't know, you know, you never know what your reasons are. But I, I definitely had a lot of stuff I wanted to do, and I thought they'd be the, you know, the best publishers I could go with because uh, my get my feeling was all right. Well, if they're they're kind of going to take you on and publish you, they're they're not going to interfere too much, or uh, that's what I understood. They're, yeah. That's kind of the cool thing about them publishing. If they do, they they kind of trust you. They believe to if they believe in your work, they believe in it. 
Exactly, and that's a, that's a huge thing when you're you know 22 years old, 23 years old. To for me, it was it was a, it was a big deal. It kind of uh, um, again, it, it makes you not really look back too much. Uh, you just want to all right. Here, I have this great publisher. I'm gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna mm-hmm. you know I'm gonna do my hardest to you know do the way I really did. I really wanted to be you know putting out a comic for tons of year like. Uh, Pete Bag or Dan Klaus and Chris <laughs> Ware. I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put four comics a year, and I don't think I, I think I, yeah, I got two of them done, and uh, those are almost already done. So I actually never put a really, I never produced work <laughs> for Fantagraphics after they took me out. Really, uh, you know, aside from a few things, it's kind of funny. Um, so. How did you meet Mike Elred, and what was your connection with him at that time? I met him in San Francisco for a Tundra-related event, and he was. Very cool. Him and his wife very, very cool to me right off the bat. And uh, probably because I was so young and I couldn't figure out what I was doing there. You know, I looked very young and I was probably a brat and probably uh, annoying to people. But at the same time, uh, they were very nice to me. I just hung out with them all through that trip and uh, became really good friends with them. And over the next year or so, I think I saw him a lot because he'd be in Northampton a lot. And uh, But then, I, then I, I didn't talk to him for like, mm, geez, 20 years or something until recently. Mm-hmm. We didn't. We, we occasionally call each other, but uh, it's one of those friendships that even though you don't see them for like say ten years, you know you're still cool and everything's good. And you miss them. I miss them a lot over the years. But yeah, what are you gonna do? You know, it, you know, you call them once in a while and you say how's it going, how's it going, but you can't really go out and hang out with each other. You live across the country, and um, and I bumped into him again in Portland when I met you. Yeah. And uh, so we're we're in closer contact now. Well, we talk more uh, often than we have. There seemed something genuine there, which I was interested in. Just like you could see, like yeah, we were just starting out at the same time. Yeah, we were just both kind of like he was doing. He just started doing the Madman comics. The very first issue had just come out when I met him, and I guess I had just done whatever Doghead, and I was working on the Biology Show stuff too, which I was obviously way more proud of and would show everyone. And uh, yeah, we liked the same music, and uh, it was just yeah, it was a very genuine, simple. You know, honest friendship that that was struck, and I always felt like felt uh, like he was my buddy, even if I didn't see him. Or which you know what I mean? It's like I didn't yeah. really need. To, and plus, I would I would get like glimpses of what he was involved in. I was like, wow, Mike's really, jeez, you know, because I I wouldn't, you know what I mean? Uh, seemed like he was involved in all this really cool stuff. He was doing this great comic, and I uh, it was like I didn't want to bother him. You know, it seemed like he was hip deep and you know all this mad success and like. And he has a big family too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's kind yep. of like a bunch of kids, and I think some of them are grandkids adults now. now. Really? Yep. Wow. There's a grandfather, the grandparents now. Yeah. The that's amazing. You start to feel old when you see that. Yeah, it's a strange feeling when we saw each other in Portland. It really was this kind of almost very emotional kind of thing because it brings you back. You know, you don't see somebody for 20 years, and then you know you've all gone through so many experiences since then, and uh. You know, but it, but what was cool is everything existed in this little time capsule. You know, we hung out again. It was like you know, no time had passed. So, um, yeah, yeah, it does make you feel old. <laughs> I'm curious. Um...
remind people I'm talking to El Columbia right now and uh, we've just been covering kind of a little bit of biographical information biographical information leading up to the biologic show bio bio um, is where we're at now and I'm just curious artistically what had you been doing other than comics up to that point or was comics your main thing mm. I suppose Whatever long at that time was, would be the main thing. Like I would get obsessed with a lot of things. I, I was I was always recording and uh, um, doing comics uh, and, jeez, I suppose comics were more or less the main thing mm-hmm. because that was the thing. I, I guess I chose or I wanted to or I thought uh, well I had a publisher I might as well make comics. You know um, there was that option. It was like so I would focus on it a lot and when I record I would just do it. And still do it just because it's to me cool to do it, and I like doing it. And and I don't really have career aspirations with either one of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know what a career is, you know. Um, 
fancy job. I don't, I don't know how you know <laughs> an abstract notion. I, I don't know what it is. It's just uh, um, they're they're kind of hard things to uh, create um, a career, you know. So I, I just kind of thought, well, eventually I'll get something done, and I have this publisher, and I'll. But I, yeah, up till then, I guess I, I do. I, it, basically, I've turned everything I did in my bedroom as a teenager into my job now. So it's I do all of these things, but uh, it's a good life. It, it it can be, yeah. Yeah, if you don't weaken, right? Yeah. Ha yeah. uh-huh. Oh, I didn't so. even think about that. Yeah. Sorry, mm-hmm. Seth. Oh, sorry, Seth, yes. Good grief. Um, what was your first work in color? Mm. Other than Doghead. I mean, your first... Oh, uh... Was it the the Trumpets play? Possibly, yeah, yeah. I think um, so. Or no, the first work I think I or first thing I did in color, flat color, I think was just a. Well, hmm, I can't believe I even know this is embarrassing, but it, it was the uh, something in zero zero actually. Oh okay. Uh, it was a full color like inside cover. I believe that was the first actual like four color thing I had published, and then I did these two color pieces for zero zero, and then uh, Trumpets they play had uh, one page of color. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. A couple of your stories you kind of touch on uh, revelations. Had you grown up around religion at all? Yes. Um, yeah, I was uh, Roman Orthodox Catholic. Uh, went to a church here in town, St. Mary's Church, which was where all the Polish families went. Um, my grandmother is Polish, speaks Polish, and would go to this church and bring me all the time. And my other grandmother would bring me to her church, which was a different church called St. Francis. And, yeah, I did the whole catechism, got, you know, did my Holy Communion, was, you know, confirmed, all this stuff. Um, but that stuff sort of haunted me. My, even in my childhood, I was very, uh, you know, um, I don't know what put this in me, but I remember even before maybe somebody putting it in me, I would go to bed at night, and I would always have this, uh, there would always be this conversation between Satan and God where, they, they, you know, where, where, or in my mind, I was inventing this conversation. But there was something to do with like not falling asleep when uh, the devil had was was talking. Um, I didn't want to fall asleep while the Satan was uh, speaking because then I felt like go to Satan, and I didn't know what Satan was. I just knew it was really bad, you know. And <laughs> you know, you uh, you know, you don't want him to you know have the last word before you're about to go off into a, a dream or nightmare. So I had a lot of nightmares as a kid, and a lot of. Uh, I would, you know, yeah, it's been a very intense part of my life, yeah, growing up and even now. Um, How old were you when you stopped going to church? Um, I still go, uh, but not as often. Oh, it's not as hardcore as it was. Um, oh, fire and brimstone, that used to be. Um, I go to a, I don't even go to a Catholic church anymore. If I do go, I just go to this one that's, there's a, a reverend uh, a Baptist uh, preacher that uh, is this cool guy who my family knows, and we kind of go there now and again. But I mainly go because, um, uh, oh, I don't know. I, I go, I suppose, because I he's got two cute daughters that play instruments and are you know in the sermon, and I tend to go there just to kind of like. You know, so now and again, I'm, my intentions are totally bad because I'm like, oh gosh, you know, that that's what I want to do is I want to. Uh, you know, I'm going to go out with a, a, a preacher's girl, you know, or something stupid like that. And I'll, and I'll like, you know, and then, you know, a girl has Jesus in her life, a good Christian girl. And I'm going to hang out with these good Christian girls. And, and, and so my intentions are totally warped when I go to these 
things, but at the same time, I'm glad I do. There's a lot of singing and things like that, which I don't really do when I'm there. I kind of pretend I am. And um, In some ways, though, it's kind of like, I don't know, church is, uh, I'm never feeling it, you know? I guess maybe I have my own church or I do my own thing that way. So when I see another person sort of talking about these things, I don't know if I believe them or not, because it's just another guy, it's another human being, and I don't know how much it has to do with my, you know, you know, in other words, I I don't really need to go there. I don't have anything in my life that's making me reach out for Jesus, in other words, or, or if he's kind of already there in some ways. Uh, um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, I kind of get it. I think so. I don't. <laughs> I try, <laughs> let's try to figure it out. Yeah, I just, I just find that... Uh, I, I, something would have terrible would have to happen for me to go to church all the time now. Mm-hmm. I guess there would have to be a tragedy, or I'd have to really lose my mind on drugs, or I—I I don't know. I, it would just have to be something would have to get very dark for me to need, uh, you know, the house of God as it were, to go to a church and be healed, or or to listen to a preacher, or be inspired by one. You know, when I watch this guy do his thing, I'm like, oh, that's what I want to do. So he inspires you, but of course I have to go right for the power position, you know, I have to go, <laughs> you know what I mean, I can't, <laughs> yeah, you know I mean, I want to be a preacher, but it takes a long time to become one and open up your own church, you know, so it's kind of a, you know, but you'll you notice that these, you know, well, they're all coming from some kind of dark thing, you know, like extremely dark. A lot of people at this church, you know, it's, or, uh, um, God, I hope he doesn't hear this, this, this broadcast, actually, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's, he probably won't. Um, but there's a lot of uh, people coming from very dark situations, very extreme situations, and and it really helps them. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to hang out with all them, and I'm wondering if my situation is as bad as theirs, if I really, maybe my seat could be taken by somebody else. Or, um, they like to bring you up in front of the church, and uh, they all kind of surround you like vampires, and they kind of hiss the word Jesus, and they kind of touch you, and they Preacher like slams your chest, makes you look up at the ceiling, and he says, "You know, look up, look up at Jesus," and you, you're not feeling it. You know, so you pretend you roll your eyes up in your head and you pretend you're uh, slightly uh, affected by it, but you're not. And there's just nothing there. If anything, I feel like they suck, suck the Holy Spirit out of me. You know, and uh, you know, whatever I had left of Jesus is gone. And they're like, "Oh, Jesus, you know, I felt the Holy Spirit there," and I'm like, "I didn't. I didn't all. I, if you felt it, you, I was the one giving it to you or something, or you were like." <laughs> Draining it out of me because you know, I didn't feel anything. I felt, you know, less than something afterwards, and um, you know, it's just one of these things that takes effect later. I, you know, I don't know. It's it. I guess I'm, it, you know, I'm kind of self-sufficient with that. I, I kind of my own, got my own engines there. I don't. I just kind of look like I feel like when I go to a church, I'm looking at another magician doing something that I know about, or I see the tricks of it, and I see the the manipulation of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, you were mentioning your grandmothers were the ones that brought your church. How were they, as far as growing up, a part of your life with this kind of disparate uh, parenting? Um, they were very concerned, you know, because I was getting, you know, I was drifting from house to house, a lot of bad houses, a lot of places. Like, with my mother, I lived with my mother until I was three. And in that time, they were very concerned. My, my mother was kind of involved in, you know, a lot of groups in that era. In the early 70s, there were a lot of cult groups, a lot of uh, communistic uh, living, you know, communes and, you know, hippie mm-hmm. stuff. And, well, I seem to be surrounded by a lot of that growing up. Uh, you know, just going from apartment to apartment, one kind of bad place to another. My mom just 
you know, a lot of friends who do drugs and stuff like that. And so these groups of people we were involved with became darker and darker and darker. And I remember a lot of it. And these are the things I remember I thought were nightmares, but later were confirmed not to be. So they actually exist as memories. They are memories. And so I'm a little freaked out by that, you know. Um, uh, until finally, uh, I guess I was, uh, nano custody went to my dad. And my dad was very, very involved in police work at the time. So he was a cop. He was a narcotics officer. And he just didn't have, he just quit, you know, being a narcotics officer is kind of like being a, I don't know, you just have to really throw yourself into it. And I suppose in many ways it's like, being, you know, it's hard to kind of mix that with family life. Yeah. Because I know I would be very afraid for my family if I were a narcotics officer. I would be really afraid to go home without thinking somebody was going to kill my family. or So So he kind of was happy to have me, I suppose, live with my mom uh, just because he didn't know what was going on. He really didn't know where we were half the time or what we were doing, but he was so busy and his, you know, meaning to say when uh, he would talk to my mom's mom, or so they, they would say things that just made him feel comfortable enough with the situation, and he'd go back to his job. No one wanted to worry him while he was in that kind of situation, you know? He doesn't, you don't be sitting with a bunch of drug dealers and be, like, worrying about your kid, you know? It would just make you fuck up or something. Um, so no one really wanted to put too much in his head about what was going on because he was, had such a dangerous job. And uh, But eventually when things got really, you know, extremely dark and strange with my mom he had custody of so he's got got me in his life and um he's remarried so i had my first stepmom you know and i move in with him and uh that's when i would see my grandparents more i suppose and uh i don't know they were very uh they, i guess my grandparents were like the, the source of light in, when i was a kid uh the all my, my dad's mom being the only i thought um i look back on it definitely the only smiling, you know, angelic, uh, you know, kind person that I knew. Just her and my, and my grandfather were the only kind people I knew. So I loved them very much. I always wanted to be with them, but I couldn't be, you know. I, uh, you know, I was caught up in, I guess, a whole other world, but, which they were very concerned about. They always, kind of, I guess, wanted me to live with them. They would have been actually good parents, in, another, in other words. And, uh, but things were the way they were, you know. So. Yeah. When did you move to Seattle? Was that after the biologic show was done and completed? Yes, yes. How long were you there for? About a year, year and a half, something like that. I had moved from Berkeley, California. Um, oh, okay, I didn't know. Or long. Berkeley in San Francisco area, I was there. Yeah. That was terrible. I, I just ended up being homeless there. Because uh, Deadline Magazine, Deadline UK, this yep. uh, lifestyle music magazine in England I was doing stuff for... Uh, at the time, or the first couple biological show stories were, were printed in that, and they owed me some money, and you know, you know, it took a while sending it, and I got stuck in uh, California, like in Southern Cal, or you know, Berkeley, and uh, just totally stuck there for a month, and lived above a, a winery, or you know, where they just still, or I don't know, bottle of wine, and in this little cement room that my friend let me stay in, it was their office, and uh, um, they were never there, so I just kind of stayed in this little room, and had no food or cigarettes or anything and uh um stuck uh, sorry I, I, but basically a bunch of uh punk kids you know a bunch of kids on the you know in that, that whole uh scene uh took me in and uh there you go you know walk on the rails go dumpster diving so it, 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 i look back on it being like wow what a what an interesting time but at the time i was like oh this is so scary mm-hmm. um but they were the they were the the nicest kids there in town the, all the all the uh whatever you want to call them gutter punks all the 
all those creepy kids you see uh, in Berkeley. Uh, those were my friends, you know. <laughs> so, and then Fantagraphics, getting to the point here, uh, Fantagraphics, uh, uh, Kim was like, all right, well, why don't you come up here? Why don't you come to Seattle and uh, we'll give you a job or something. And uh, that sounds pretty bad. So, you know, they, they, they uh, invited me up. So I uh, took the Green Tortoise Express uh, up the West Coast to Seattle and started color separating for Fantagraphics, doing color separations, which I had never done before. And they kind of said, all right, here's a computer. Here's Acme Novelty Library. Color it. <laughs> here's, the, here's, the, here's the guide. And I'm like, oh, great. What a thing to start out on. That's like, I don't know, giving somebody, uh, you know, uh, I didn't know anything about anything about that. And uh, Chris sent these very complicated color guides, and, you know, you did it to the exact percentage, and he had color holds. I didn't know what a color hold was. And, and here's a guy who just did all this very innovative stuff with, like, uh, you know, all that Ruby lets and stuff for the newspaper. He's doing all this amazing stuff. And then here come the computers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just at yeah. that moment. And he had to readjust. And I know Chris hated hated the computers and the color. You know, it's effectively the same thing. It's just flat color. It's yeah. So that's what I did. I just It's just kind of like cutting out shapes and you film with a color. It's the same thing, except you're doing it on a computer. So I think people have a misguided notion of what computers are capable of. I mean, it's, uh, you know... It's really up to you, and I know things can look very computery, but that's only if you make them look computery. It's the um, a lot. It's really great for color separations and pre-production, and just getting color percentages right the way you'd want them to print. And that's really all I use it for, uh, mostly uh, aside from little things here and there. But uh, yeah, so I had work at a Macme Novelty Library. My first uh, job <laughs> I think I ever had was working for Fantagraphics Color and Chris's Comics, and. Uh, uh, which I did all night. I I got to stay up. They did. I was a special case. Let's say <laughs> they knew I couldn't deal with the with the daylight hour. Uh, you know, because that place was weird during the day. It was like a, a mental hot. It was like a, a psych this? ward or something. Everyone was loony, and I couldn't handle it. And so Kim, Kim really bent over backwards to make me feel comfortable. And you know, now that I was a prima donna, I was just neurotic and strange. And I just, I was very, uh, you know. Uh, paranoid of people and didn't, or just socially anxiety, a lot of social anxiety, I suppose. I just didn't like having to talk to people or explain myself or, you know, I don't know. I just, I just, more comfortable at night. So they let me come in at night and it was just me and I, you know, yeah. smoke a lot of pot in their offices and color Chris's comic. This was on uh, Lake, the house on Lake City Way? Yeah, yeah. I used to wake up in the morning, people walking over me doing their jobs is hilarious I'd fall asleep and I'd wake up people stepping over me to get to their desk just paying me no mind it was, it was totally that's what it was like though. people would do that a lot just kind of crash or it was a very informal mm-hmm. kind of place they got used to me sleeping on the floor in the middle of the day just they let me sleep you know they're really nice about it um, I practically lived there so yeah and then you ended up roommates with Eric and yeah. a whole bunch of other people in a crazy house yeah, yeah, that was those were the, the, some of the uh, the great times, you know. Um, I've I've heard stories of that house. Of uh, <laughs> I think Pete Bag was telling me about how there's uh, no toilet paper in the bathroom. And oh, of course not. You know, dishes piled house. up to the ceiling. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> you know, oh God, dust dust bunnies, whatever you call those things. You know, like tumbleweeds. You know, just, <laughs> we did not, we didn't clean up. We walked around in long johns, and you know, like we just like quintessential like college kids or something we were that age really we were really young so it was great to be you know to get to do that to get to be like you know part of this whole thing with fanographics putting on a comic and uh have friends like that who are the same age and we would just we would just yeah we kind of went crazy when we had our own house yeah we had the band room downstairs we were constantly recording on four tracks and 
you know, playing our songs for each other, and uh, we were more into that than anything. I think, like, Eric and I recorded more than we ever drew. Yeah. And But Eric was very disciplined. He he would draw a lot, and it used to freak me out how much he'd be in his room, you know, and uh, drawing, and you used to always want to bug him, you know. So, you know, it's funny, as a cartoonist, you go through that, I think, with people in your life who don't do that. You They'll tend to... You're, you're, you, if you need to be alone to do that, and you, you'll, you'll announce to your whole family, all right, well, I'm going to go in this room, and I'm going to draw, and I really need you to not knock on the door. I don't care what happens. I'm going to do this thing. And now five minutes later, they're knocking on the door. You know, they can't resist it. And I know that where that comes from, that psychology, is because Eric would just lock himself away in the room, and I'd be sitting down there going, that, why is he up there so long? Why, why wouldn't he come down and hang out with us? And uh, we'd all get together, and we would just sneak up the stairs and, and totally interrupt him. He'd get you know, totally vexed and upset with us, and <laughs> then we do it again and again and again. So Eric's whole whole time there with us was just me either knocking on his door when I knew he didn't want me to, him getting flustered, or then uh, leaving, and then I'd sneak his room and steal his pot, or, you know, or listen to his records and look at all his books, and he'd come home and all his shit would be everywhere, and I'd be, and I'd be uh, passed out, you know, and, it, it, you know, Eric was the most disciplined cartoonist I'd ever seen. I mean, he worked a lot. He really, uh, mm-hmm. you know... Yeah, so those are fun times. Uh, we used to uh, do a lot. Jeremy Eaton lived there, Andy Schmidt, uh, me and Eric. And we also had, we all often had a lot of people there and uh, visiting. Uh, Jim Blanchard was around back then. And, it was always uh, a good time. <laughs> it was a real good time, yeah. You, you don't know what you have, though, until later, you know. I, I, you're just going through it, and you don't realize what you had until many years later. You're like, wow, that was a really special time. I can't believe all those people were there at the same time. Yeah. John Lewis, uh, Ed Brubaker, um, Jason Lutz, jeez, uh, all these cartoonists were there at the time. And I didn't even know that. I just kind of went to Seattle not knowing there was this gigantic uh, thing happening there with cartoonists. I just knew, I think I knew like a couple people who were there, like Jim Woodring, I was psyched to meet, that kind of thing. But uh, it's like, oh my God, what a, you know, I'm like the 100th cartoonist on the block here. This is weird. But it was all right. It was fun. I mean, you like that stuff when you're young. I don't think I do it now. I never move anywhere because there's a lot of people there or cartoonists. Uh, yeah. But, you Back spoke, then, it was. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I would say you've spoke quite fondly in the past of um, Jim Woodring. Mm. Yeah, he was. He group. was the first person I kind of, I suppose, who. Uh, the first kind of cartoonist uh, of that um, stature or whatever. Uh, well, I really loved his stuff, and getting to hang out with him on any level would have been amazing. But getting, you know. Uh, so I got to Seattle. He was he took me out and drove me around. He he just took an interest in me. I don't know. He just seemed uh, very. Uh, mm, he was always very good to me. Very genuine guy. Very good to me. And to this day, you know, we, you know, we'll meet up and we'll go for a walk or something, and uh, we'll talk about stuff. It's just a really great honor to know him. And uh, um, I definitely count him as definitely one of my longtime friends in comics. Definitely. Um, yeah, always, always a good guy. We played at one of his Halloween parties, and uh, I remember he was dressed as Santa Claus with horns, <laughs> with horns, though, little wooden horns. He was walking around as Santa Claus with all the, with these two little pagan, uh, you know, uh, hor- you know, horns sticking out of the hat, and I thought that was that summed him up pretty good because he was this kind of strange grandfatherly paternal or paternal type of guy, but he'd also let you know he wasn't your dad. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, you know, he's got this very inviting, uh, very warm quality, but he'll also gong you in the head. I mean, the minute you say something stupid, he'll let you know. I don't know how to explain it. You got I'm very careful when I'm around Jim not to uh, talk too much or something or just listen to him. 
I just kind of listen to Jim when he talks. I, I try not to uh, tell him anything, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> inform him of anything. You know, uh, it's just kind of a, uh, there's a lot to learn from him, so I just kind of listen. I get very quiet when I'm, I'm around Jim. I've seen other folks kind of like that, too, with him. Just there's this kind of... Yeah, you don't want him to catch reference. you being in it. I don't know what it is. When Jim kind of frowns at you, just don't like it. You just get very upset with yourself. It's uh <laughs> I don't know why that is. Uh, you, you know, his opinion of you means a lot. I don't know what it is. I'd always, I'll always be like that too. I'd always be a nervous Nelly around him, but you know. Oh, his um, approval or disapproval means a lot. In other words, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, you stopped doing comics for a while after, after that, um, between zero zero, and eventual gnome. Work. No, I never stopped at all. I've I've worked every day pretty much since then on stuff. I just don't know. Like I never know how I will edit it or, you know, make a book out of any of it. I've uh, so long. I kept it's, working. Yeah, it's the sketchbooks. I suppose you call them sketchbooks because I don't sketch. So I guess those are the closest things to sketches I have there. Mm-hmm. But they're not really sketches either. Um, they're either almost finished or fully finished pieces. Really. Um, well, you I know think we were what? just being wise asses when we called them sketchbooks. Yeah. Well, like uh, done that. you know Seth's um, uh, Wimbledon Green book. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's you know quote unquote done in a sketchbook, but I mean that's a finished comic there. Right. Right. It's sort of like doing a fully finished painting in your sketchbook becomes a sketch. I, you yeah. Know, <laughs> um, yeah. Like, well, wow, that's interesting. I didn't. I did not know that. Yeah, or it's like Baron's story, you know, quote-unquote, his paintings are all done in a sketchbook because he does a daily mm. painting or daily piece of work in this book. Um, but, yeah. So we'll just... Yeah, well, I don't sketch at all. I just find drawing when I'm not working on something I really want to, like, make into a story or, you know, a painting or whatever. I just... I don't draw just to draw. I don't know why. I don't take out pieces of paper and doodle and... Uh, even when I'm on the phone, really... Uh, not much of a sketcher. I don't really. I'm not really obsessed with drawing. I just kind of do draw, mm-hmm. you know. And um, you know, it's just one of these things I've done, you know. So I, um, for a long time. And I guess you, you might get good at something if you do it every day for a long, long time. Uh, so the work that's collected in the Pim and Francie book um, is that artifacts from sketch from from your books. Um, no, well, no, I don't have any sketchbooks really. They're they're they, they all come from a pretty massive pile of artwork or stack of artwork that I've, I've made over the years, and I just kind of uh, I always worked on the Pim and Francis alongside a lot of other things. Um, pretty much every day, twenty four hours a day, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Till about a few years ago, where it just uh, and I talked about that with Nicole Rudick, where it just became a strange thing to do. And, you know, I guess I would be happy to say that it's not as strange now. I've been drawing a lot and painting a lot, and it's just there's no sense of falling down a rabbit hole anymore. So I guess I guess I waited long enough, and I'm fine to do it again. Um, I'm not getting creeped out by it, and um, it's a lot of fun now. Um, but, yeah, they all came, all the stuff from Pim and Francie uh, came from my collection of work that I either started or didn't finish um, with those characters. And... Uh, I'm not sure really why the pages or the book turned out the way it did. I didn't have a plan with that. It just started. I just started to put it together, and 
uh, really uh, spent a lot of time doing that sequencing the pages, and I really didn't know what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I but I knew something weird was happening. At least for me, I didn't know if anyone else would pick up on that. But uh, there's something interesting about the sequencing that occurred to me. And um, well, I mean, it, it I I feel there there is an arc to it, um, mm. and a movement. Um, like there's a development, the characters more developing themselves. Um, you know, you definitely start out a lot more sketchier at the beginning and sure. get more flushed out and more full drawings near the end. Um, yeah. The, the, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you. Oh no, I would just say I, I would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I'm really curious about with the Pim and Francie book is, especially, you have um, a lot of situations where you'll see the same thing from different angles, like at the beginning where you have the baton twirling fellow um, with the ropes with the kids at the end of the ropes, I guess, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You see that from about five or six different angles and different... Oh, really? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, because you're kind of moving through that field, I suppose. Yeah. You're, move, you're floating through or moving through, um, and it's revealing different... Um, Element or people or elements that are with you know existing in this uh, place, which would my mind be this. Uh, mm, that would be one of the things I suppose goes right back to childhood um, memories. Uh, that the, the the man twirling the children is based on a memory I have of one of the people my mom began to follow here in the East Coast. Uh, almost like kind of an East Coast Charlie Manson type. He was a, a real weird guy, black beard, black you know the whole deal and. Uh, I don't remember him, and uh, that, that's kind of who we, that's based on. Um, so those me- those are definitely come straight from childhood memories. Those uh, those images of the little. I remember sitting at picnic table with other children crying, like not wanting to eat the food he was giving us, stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. That's where the kids eating their own intestines comes from. Uh, it's just it's basically, um, and it just sort of worked into this idea of uh, just a place where all little bad boys and little girls, people aren't true to each other or break bonds end up a sort of punishment a sort of I don't know uh, just uh, there's like a Pied Piper feeling to it too sure I kind of get yeah um hmm yeah yeah it, it, hmm that's that's a character I suppose uh, called Groovy Gus he's just sort of this uh, I don't know <laughs> I like that Groovy Gus he's one of the 666ers uh, this murder gang that haunts him in France these six killers or bad people or bad uh Bad dude to uh, sort of haunt them. Uh, you know, always want to chop them up, kill them, <laughs> or seduce them, or corrupt them. How much? I, um, I notice a lot of characters. There's a certain resemblance some of them may have to you, like the the many armed guy with a knife. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I oh, that looks see, like me. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> see that in. In, in meeting you and knowing what you look like I see your face in there and even with the uh, at the beginning the, the the short squat guy picking apples from the tree with that smile like I can, I've seen photos where you post on your site where you kind of have that same well I do smile. have that face which is probably why I draw it and why I was uh, didn't realize it so much as or it's just an innate thing an internal thing you know or you think you know what you look like? I don't know. Uh, that's where I guess it's all autobiographical. You kind of are drawing. I am drawing in that that character and many others. I suppose when you see that face, it's I've discussed it being something that is uh, 
you know, it's called a rictus or a uh, uh, this, this uh, very ancient thing. But at the same time, my my face when I smile, I look like that. <laughs> so it's like you know, um, I don't, I don't. Um, I'm really drawing, yeah. Uh, I guess parts of myself uh, or who I. I mean. Um, and these things occur to you as time goes on. You don't always know why you're doing what you're doing. And uh, but uh, after a while, I realized, oh wait, that's me. I'm drawing. And uh, yeah, it's also something. Um, uh, you know, I and, and that intrigues me on some level. Like, why? Why would I have the same sort of features as uh, you know, um, as you know, a death face or you know, a yeah. death grin or a. Why do I have that face as a human being? Is that my, you know, am I am I the Grim Reaper? No, but you know, it's. Uh, but I, I, um, I'm always interested in, or um, I have friends, a couple friends who are uh, who very much have a very similar type of face. A, a good friend of mine who I'm, uh, who uh, I uh, is in a, a lot of stuff I film. Um, has the the quintessential you know, little boy death face, like in a way that is so frighteningly biblical and strange and you don't know how he does this and you don't know when you're filming him, it's just this powerful, powerful thing he can, he can do with his face or convey. And it's, uh, um, it makes you wonder sometimes if, uh, I don't know. I don't know what we all are as humans to each other. Uh, symbols, archetypes, uh, we're all kind of, uh, meant to, uh, maybe represent one thing or one notion. I don't know, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about here. It's just, uh, well, you know, representation, yeah, I'm sorry. Representation is interesting because I mean, that's what I mean. That's what I'm kind of looking at when I look at your work is I see yourself represented in different contexts. And so uh, I'm, just, yeah. I'm wondering if there's like a certain type of catharsis to it, a certain type of like working out particular issues through that representation. Yes, I would say so. Um, or it's also just a way to just sort of anchor yourself. Uh, you know, you might not know everything that's coming, or you might not even know why you're here, or who you are, or why you speak. But you know that mean that you that's something to hang on to almost when you don't know what's happening. That's that's I suppose that's what it means to me. It's something that I can believe in even when that, everything else um, seems strange or unmanageable or. Uh, indecipherable or uh, you know <laughs> um, it, the weird yeah that face seems to calm me down um, mm -hmm. it means something I just don't know what it is it, it, maybe you're never supposed to know maybe and if you did you would maybe just be like oh is that is that it you know it's kind of like if you're tripping on that or you're doing some kind of drug which which sort of reveals something to you like let's say the the, the, the secret of life the, you know of the universe of everything if there is such a thing I think there has to be a few but if there's one thing that uh, is um, you know going to say oh my god I get it now you know if you saw that image or what you were seeing in your mind in a straight life or when you're not on drugs or when you're not um, meditating or what have you or hallucinating or whatever it's not going to have any meaning it, you know meaning to say it's uh, it's going to look like a tie-dye or something it's going to look like a psychedelic image but the psychedelia means a lot when you're experiencing with those sort of drugs you understand what that means while you're on the drug but off the drug it's just this bunch of colors of, you know or some trippy designer you know, it, 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 but, but it does have a meaning but at the same time, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, you can't articulate it, but you know it comforts you. I don't know. Um, 
I'm not sure yet what what that is. What why I uh, uh, share the you know uh, the similar features or why uh, what what I'm getting at with that. What I'm digging into when I examine that part of myself. Uh, sometimes it can be scary. You know, it can definitely life imitating our imitating life can get really creepy um, because you're at one point or another your dreams can kind of uh, you know enter your waking life and. You know, I've had dreams that feel a lot like uh, just a boring day I've had, and I suppose that's when you're doing well, when you're not dreaming anything too crazy. You know, you just sort of make some coffee and uh, watch TV, and you're like, wait a minute, I just dreamt literally the most boring thing in the world. What? <laughs> and uh, my life my life just feels like, all right, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like there's moments uh, where you can get so much into what you're doing that um, things do collide or, or, or you, you will uh, you know your waking life can seem very uh, have a dream logic to it or seem very subconscious and you know it did it for me it did for a while where my world just became an, a really intense nightmare uh, where the only thing that got me through it was literally the colors of a rainbow like where I followed a rainbow through a nightmare in other words that's what got me out just yeah. following symbols symbols that I understood Jungians, I mean, you know, things that got me out of this or, or how I got through every day or the path I followed was entirely, I, I could, I, really scary to me now that I was even there, but, uh, um, you know, but in the sense that, like, when something's very frightening and you don't know what to do next, what would happen for me is, I mean, literally, sometimes it was hilarious, like, uh, uh, somebody would call me at that moment and say, Al, look outside, there's a rainbow. And I go outside, and it would literally make somebody paint a perfect popping rainbow right in front of my house just for me. Like, yes, I'll do that. That. So there would be these confirmations to let me know to go in a certain direction. It would be like, yes, the rainbow, or even if it was just uh, refracting off a CD onto the wall, the white. If I saw the co- those colors at a certain point, it would uh, it would confirm mm, some choice or a path that wanted to take. It's, it would say go go that way. It's so interesting I, it, that colors play such a such a, like a positive role when they're almost completely absent from your work. I never thought about that. That's really strange. I never thought that uh colors were so absent from like or it, they are when I think about it, yeah. Well it's funny hmm. because you're like the end of the trumpets play is quite like what you're talking about where you have this intense darkness that ends with this kind of clear green opulence. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's the right word. Um, and then also within Pim and Francie, there are um, parts where, like, I've got the one print of uh, Pim and Francie walking in front of this facade that's falling apart behind them, which is mm-hmm. in, like, which is in color, which you've used in the book, kind of chopped up in different spots. And there's also the um, poster, the Toyland poster that Jason published in that issue of Diamond um, that you guys were selling when the book came out. And yes. So, I mean, here's these examples of color being used, but as far as, as as a part of the bigger work, it's not there. I feel like, well, sometimes in, with a book... Um you're showing with a comic book uh, that's uh, full color, or uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, no matter how finely crafted, no matter how emotional the impact is supposed to be because of the colors, or 
it just looks like a lot of colors. It just, it just, yeah. I, I guess it's just aesthetic. Like I just don't like lots of. It just looks garish. It's just even the the best stuff to me. Just I mean, I like that. I like you know picking up like one of those reprints of the old Mickey Mouse cartoons, and it's just these all these panels and it's just lots of bright colors. But at the same time, it just seems very loud and like it's yelling at me or something. There's something about color or lots of color. Um, even if it's a scene and it's just you know the palette is really limited, it, there's still the next scene which. I mean, you really have to study that stuff. Like, like um, you have to really have it appreciated. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to. Uh, I'm getting more into it now, where I, I suppose I want to use more color. But uh, I suppose I, there's something about it that's distracting to me. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of blinking screens, and <laughs> I, I don't know. I just don't yeah. really personally. It doesn't work for me. Like I've I've done that where I've colored stuff, but I always tend to end up muting it so much it's not even there. Well, or I mean, here's it's there the, by five percent, you know. Well, that's just it. You're doing it in computer too, right? Yeah. Like, and yeah. how does that affect the process of creating an image? Where with a lot of the stuff in the book is, you know, very obviously pen and ink on paper. Um, there's that immediacy. There's that sense of it, the the completion there. And when you start getting involved in the computer process, where you can lose yourself in that, and um, the process can take over. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I, I'm, you know, sometimes I um, just don't feel like scanning something in, so I won't work on it. You know what I mean? Like the the idea of taking, uh, sitting down and working, and then having to go to the computer to scan it in and uh, get it off the file set up, and then uh, color correct something. It's necessary. You have to do it. Otherwise, it'll really print very weirdly. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, like a lot of stuff in Pinot Fancy, it wasn't just a raw scan I would print. I, I, I had to adjust things so that it more accurate, you know, whatever, or uh, just mostly like the blacks or the, the black areas or the contrast, not too much contrast, but you just want the, you want it to kind of feel like it looked in real life. So you just, you, the, the scanners and they just kind of do this, uh, they get the data, but it, you have to tinker with it a bit, not to change it or make it more or less than it was. It's just to get it to look natural. Almost you have to, you know, employ a few, uh, you know, uh, techniques to just sort of get it to look uh, normal uh, the way you want people to see it. Um, but yeah, I don't get too lost in the computer with that sort of thing. Um, I'm always real specific. Like I, I kind of scan something in and I go, all right, this is going to be a flat color thing. And I like doing it, but there's also this, I don't know, spanking new quality to, <laughs> to bright colored, uh, inked comics that I can't stand anymore. Like, and I kind of don't like any of the images I've done where I've colored them that way. I kind of want to take them and print them out and scan them again or something. I want to, uh, yeah, which I do. I, you know, a lot of the time I will degenerate, or you know, there'll be a generation loss or something, and something. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't like always when, remember to do that. Kind of like when you take a a videotape and make a copy and make a copy and make a copy. Sure. Yeah. I don't do that as a rule, uh, and sometimes I feel like it should be a rule. <laughs> you know, like oh my god, I can't believe I just, uh, you know, made the line art. You know. Uh, you know, you got perfectly, you know, uh, high resolution, you know, the line art is all crisp and nice, and there's this bright, flat color, and it's, that's great, but it's only going to look cool like 50 years when it ages or something, you know what I mean? That's what yeah. I, I, I like about, I like the notion of that, that you're making something which is supposed to age naturally rather than, but that's what I did with Tim Francie. All that stuff was... Uh, just from over the years, me stepping on the, these pieces or spilling coffee on them or, th- you know, throwing them into a corner or it 
it's all uh, with a bend or you know rip. Um, all of that is just from natural decay, natural wear and tear of the stuff over many years. Should um, should art be precious or should it just be there? Should it be precious? Like it sounds hmm. to me like to you, it's it's almost like a, less of a an archival notion and more of an active notion. Like you engage yes. it and you're done with it, or yes, pretty much. It's just I've lost all sense of uh, posterity. You know, it's like yeah. I, I have no sense of uh, keeping everything I do. Uh, I always think it's weird when an artist does that too, where they're thinking of their historical place or the, where they're going to be like 100 years from now or how they're going to be regarded. And so they're very careful what they say or they're it's always so very image-based and uh, um, they get the shtick worked out and they stick to it and it's kind of like for fear of deviating from that and saying something maybe even perhaps honest or real might, you know, take them down or something that deviates from that, that sort of character they made for themselves. And, and a lot of that has to do with... Uh, I, I don't know, I don't know how to explain it, like, keeping every shred of, of, I don't know, I know people do that, like, they keep everything they've ever done, and, but then, you know, at the end of the day, I can't help but think no one really cares, it's, no one cares, I, I don't think there's going to be people knocking their door down for this stuff, it, it's you just, see, uh, I'm the opposite, where, to me, I think, I mean, I'm a history, I graduate with a history degree, you know, I did a book of interviews, which is like, archiving these interviews, well, I would say that's important because you did take the... I mean, these are interviews. You know what I mean? Uh, in that sense, I could see that. I, I'm the same way, but not with my own stuff. Yeah. Well, it's, um, I can lose it, give it away. I don't... I, I, I'm not bragging in that sense. Like, oh, look at me. I just don't care. It, yeah. It's just I, I just wish I cared more because I do have certain regrets that I could have been more careful that way. But uh, what are you going to do? It'll turn up somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, I went to... Uh, this one guy, Marvin Newland, who did the uh, Bambi meets Godzilla cartoon. He yeah. was, he's a Vancouver guy, and he was cleaning out his uh, his studio where they used to do commercial animation. There's all this commercial animation stuff there, and he's just like, grab what you want, and there's just boxes, boxes of artwork, just <laughs> and like to him, it's not his personal stuff; it's just commercial work. Uh, oh, gotcha. And, okay. Yeah, and so just like he's got his personal stuff at home, put aside, you know showed me the original pan the Godzilla squishing page which is actually in the in the Instead's book um but i mean i it was interesting seeing this where it's like to me i have a lo i see a lot of value even if there isn't a commercial value and like i don't really care about commercial value of artwork i'm concerned in like the uh the archival quality like to me it's important to have a sense of history um Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think that would be, like, meaning to say, like, it would be cool if someone else had a, had a, a sense of that with myself, but I don't, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's weird to have that uh, about your own work. Like, I just think I'm too busy doing it to package it up or archive it or put in folders and take care of it. I, I'm like that with CDs. I'm like that with everything. I don't take very good care of things. I don't know why. I <laughs> break things a lot. I'll throw a computer down the stairs. I'm really into destroying things a lot of the times, and I didn't understand why for why that was a part of my life, you know, where, uh, you know, I'd spend like, uh, you know, three days drawing something and just, you know, uh, a week later, um, you know, you get, you know, uh, and, uh, I don't know, something would happen and I would just look at that thing I did and, um, and it wasn't that I didn't like it or was frustrated with it or, um, you know, this insane perfectionist, it's just more like it got in my way. It's just this piece of paper that I, 
knew meant something to me, so I why not tear it up and destroy it and see what that feels like? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so the more the more you start doing that, um, there's a certain the more it actually feels pretty rad. It's like oh wow, you know, you just uh, fuck it, you know. I'll just uh, I'll just uh, you know chop this thing up and uh, you know I'll show them. I you know it's not even spite. It's just like uh, I think it's important to not. I don't know, it's not important. Well, for me it is. It's important to not um, develop too many expectations about these things or, or, or putting work out or publishing work or having this sort of, uh, you know, this, this course set in mind because then you're just going to be, you become very, uh, I don't know, narcissistic or something about it. And, uh, do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. it's kind of hard for me to think that anyone really cares half the time anyway about what I do. I, I now walk around thinking, I just have to remind myself... Uh, that there might be some people who want to see my stuff, or, or, or that uh, maybe I should. Uh, I mean, I have ideas of, the, uh, of, of, of putting things out, and uh, but in time when they're ready. I, I just uh, if it's not ready, I'm not going to worry about. It. I'm not going to. Oh, I got to get this out this year for you know, or I have yeah. to put a book out a year, or I have to maintain a a, a, a schedule with the public of showing my face, I, or, or they'll forget about me, or whatever. And I, and I can see how that can seduce a person. And I know when you're getting a lot of attention for something you did, it can be. I suppose for some people very addictive and they never get over it or they'll have that initial blast of success and then everything just becomes uh, you know enormously important to them uh they're super important now and uh you know like <laughs> they, they get this like sense of the future but i i think you're just going to run into a lot of trouble if you even just let it happen naturally in other words and yeah. uh, uh my experience is that every day is different i don't know if i'll be the same person tomorrow i am today i don't know if i'll even agree with anything i said today tomorrow you catch me here. This is a snapshot, but and tomorrow uh, will be a different, different day, a different person. I don't know. And that's that's where the archivist in me gets so excited. Is you get something, and you know it's just that moment in time, and it represents that moment in time that you exactly. can never revisit. You can't. You can't really. I can't go back and work on stuff. That's. It just got to be where I left it, and that bugged me for a long time. I, I didn't understand. Again, like sometimes. It's, something will really tear you apart, but it's really the best thing for you. Or you'll learn later why you went through that. It's almost like something has a plan for you. So let it let it have its plan, like uh, whatever you want to call it, some higher force. I really believe that it has. Uh, it kind of uh, they kind of write it for you. They write your story for you. Don't try to force that. Like don't try to uh, if if you are in any way uh, dealing with the you know you put books out or you're a public figure or an actor or a writer artist. You shouldn't really be too concerned with your image because there's something else altogether taking care of that for you. You don't have just be yourself, and that and everything else will follow. But there's there's a lot of that going on with people where I don't know. It's almost more about who they are than what their what books they're making, or it's uh, like their comics is a lifestyle thing with them. It's a lifestyle cartoonist where it looks cool with the pants they're wearing. I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't know how to explain it. It's just like part of. It's as much a part of their look as much of it as it is art. And it only really has any power when, when in the context of all these other things you need to know first. Like, well, you don't understand this book is great because this guy you see, he did this, this. Oh, all right, now I get it. I shouldn't have to be told why something is cool based on some, you know, legend about the person or, or uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you feel then, oh, oh, I get it. It's, it's, uh, like with the New York Hotel record, I just loved that record. I didn't know what it was about. As soon as I, I learned it was about Anne Frank, I stopped listening to it. Because I don't care about Anne Frank. Why would I? You know, I don't. <laughs> and I don't care. This guy cared about her. I just, you know, I liked it because yeah. it, it was personal to me. And now it's not. I can't listen to any of those songs because uh, 
I mean, I can, but they're. Uh, and you they're can apply changed. them to your own life, but it's 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 a it's an art project. It was an art piece, and yeah. as such, you know, you take it for what it is, and you can appreciate it. You know, it's this portrait of uh, Anne Frank. But now that I know that, I just don't want to stare at a portrait of Anne Frank every time I listen to that record. In other words, you know what I mean. So yeah. there's. Well, I think there's it, also it, something to be said about about his own response to the album, where he's pretty much off the map for the most part. And I can, uh, yeah, yeah, I get that, I can relate, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, um, I you think know. it was an amazing thing he went through, it was just really intense thing, I love all of that, I love the, you know, the history of that record, but in terms of what I get from listening to it, it I'm more interested in, in the guy, in, in his story, definitely, I definitely can appreciate that more than, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's almost like, kind of like, I, I want to, maybe when I listen to the record, it's going to be because I want to kind of learn more about uh, what he's saying, you know, you know what I mean? A subject. It's almost uh, kind of like, um, like I can't really listen to, uh, let's say, Frank Black's Teenager of the Year record anymore because it's so academic. It's such like a learning experience. When you're young, you listen to that record, you learn so much from that guy's uh, stuff. He's a real reader, you know. So yeah. he's always uh, presenting you with these really, you know, wild uh, stories and kind of. And, and, but they're also, he's like a teacher or something, a professor of that. Like it's a very. But you there's know, something. Uh, there's something immediate about Doolittle, about how that just pops and just gets. Yeah, around. yeah, that's not, that's very uh, that's very uh, yes, yes. I know exactly what you mean. Whereas it's more his stuff becomes more and more intellectualized as it goes on. It's not. I don't know. You know what I mean? There's always yeah. a kind of a, a theme set and a kind of a. Uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like singing about Ray Bradbury's stuff or about his work. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Or, or singing about. He sings a lot about what he likes, and that's cool. But. It's also like, all right, well, I get it, but don't tell me everything you like, you know, or don't, I, I can't handle it. It's like now I'm, I have to, you know, I mean, what if I don't like Ray Bradbury, but I like your song, and I don't know, I guess I'm really weird that way. I'm neurotic that way. It's uh, like the color, like if an album cover is, uh, has certain colors to it. I won't listen to it because I don't want those colors in my head, you know, and they will be in my head when I listen to it. Um, I think like album art is really important with that, with colors and the subtlety of it or what you're getting across really, uh, it, it, you know, influences, you know, how you listen to the music. Who is that you know, uh, Martin? Who? who? Who's the person you're referring? You said Martin. I can't even remember it. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I, I don't even remember where I was going there. So, uh. It's all right. We can uh, replay the tape. <laughs> one, two, one, two, three.
how big is music in your life as far as making music? Um, yeah, I just never know what I'm going to do. It. Uh, it's, it's. I guess it's as big a part as anything else. Uh, but more infrequent. I, I, I just kind of record now and again. Um, when something's building up in, in your head, you just kind of, kind of do it. Or you can really get into it for a few weeks at a time where you're not sleeping or you're kind of uh, just recording all the time, all the time, and then you. Uh, you just move on to something else. There's there's different modes. Cartooning is very, very, very uh, much different than recording or being in that vibe. I find that like doing music seems to come along. Or I do it more when the more intense my life seems to become, or there's this vibration, this intense intensity to everything. Where I just there's no way I'd be able to sit and express that, or express. I hate that word. Help me express myself. You know. Um, <laughs> but you know. You can do it. Uh, you know, you can't really sit down to comics when your your life's humming along at like warp you know some warp speed or some some kind of in, intense uh you know stories playing out you you kind of can really like capture that in an immediate sense you know you need something that's going to get it out immediately or the imagery or the the feeling of it needs to kind of uh, you need to be able to do it right there and and that's what I like about filming it and, and that's kind of like recording but again like the intensity of that is much much higher than that i mean it's uh it's very, yeah, it is very cathartic and all that, but like comics, it's way more sitting down and kind of, you slow, it's, you have to be at a much calmer speed or something, you must, you know, you have to be ready for, uh, you know, the fireplace and uh, NPR or something and uh, classical music, I don't know, you know, I find I listen to a lot more radio and I suddenly listen to NPR more when I'm doing comics, but when I'm not, I can't stand any of that, like I will not sit down and, uh, you know, uh, I don't. I. I. I, I it's not that I don't like a quiet lifestyle. I. Uh, I. Um, it comes and goes. It, it just comes and goes, and. Uh, but lately, I'm managing to draw even within the sort of vibe that's that's occurring with the filming and the uh, and the recording. It, it seems to slip in there now where it didn't before. That's all. So I'm not sure why. Visually, um, like. We're saying before with Grim Francie, it's not uh, necessarily like a straight comic narrative. I'm curious why you stick with cartooning um, and art doing, say, finished paintings or something in that context where you can do a solitary image and here's an image in itself as much. Hmm. Well, because there's no other way to do it. Um, you can't really photograph it, you can't um, record it. I kind of like to draw and paint what I don't want to film and film what I don't want to paint and record what I don't want to do either the other you know it's uh, yeah. it all finds its place um, I didn't set out to do it this way it's just all the things I've done since I was you know teenager in my bed like I said just a you know um, it just all seems to develop along the same lines you know maybe at a certain point I'm more into one thing than the other but you you, you only ever get better at things not worse and I'll do it as long as it's just, it's sort of something I love doing. You know, the minute I'm, I'm just like, eh. you know, but I would never stop because somebody said, oh, you know, and I have had people say that to me now and again, like, uh, well, you're a cartoonist. Why are you doing music? And it's like, well, I'm barely a cartoonist. I don't know how, you know what I mean? I barely <laughs> published anything. How can I just suddenly, how can you claim me? You know, as you're, you know, that's what I do. And uh, um, I've done all this stuff at the same time. Uh, well, know, it's just, keep moving, I was moving each thing forward and. What's that? I was thinking about uh, Dave Cooper, who doesn't really do comics at all anymore and just does particularly paintings, which are, in a lot of ways, less laborious for him. 
like it's less work i don't know less really? work it's but it's hmm. it's definitely like i mean this isn't really apropos to you i guess cuz you're not really out there selling your work but for him it's more a financially rewarding experience um yes and i i find that artist philosophies often reflect their bank accounts. It's kind of like, all right, well, this is really good for a commercial worker. This is really good for it being a financial windfall. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. like you can, like, this is a great piece of art given the, the what, what everyone went through making it or the, the, the frustrations or the lack of money. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. I can understand that, like, it might be less laborious, but it's also... You know, I wouldn't know what Dave's reasons were for deciding not to do comics anymore. I think maybe he wanted to affect some dramatic exit and then, you know, become mysterious or something and uh, do fine art. And uh, But it's all the same stuff to me. I just kind of look at that those paintings. I'm like, you know, I don't get the obsession. I think it's a, a self, it's a manufactured obsession or something. It just doesn't seem... It seems like, yeah, it's like trying to... I don't know. It's, it does seem for, uh, financial, and that's great, but I don't know. I guess if I were to do anything for money or because it's more financially rewarding, I would just go make guitars at a guitar factory or I would yeah. get a job. I don't you know. <laughs> I mean? you, you know what I mean? I just, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, if I'm going to do something for money, it's not going to be uh, with the art. I wouldn't know how to make money doing art. So I, 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 I've never done anything for money, but I have money, so I make money from it, but I don't know how that happens. It's a mystery. Do you and I never know if I'm going to again, and it's always strange. It's, it, it, you, know, you know, I just don't take anything for granted with that. So, But the minute I'm having to do art to make money or commercial art or, you know, I don't know, just do these gallery shows, which are a fancy way of saying I need money, um, and it's like... Uh, I don't know, I find that a lot of it is about that. It's all about just sort of masking your intentions, like, okay, this is cool, but only if it doesn't appear on my website. Let's just put it on your website. You know what I mean? It's always, yeah. uh, it's always uh, you know, something uh, disingenuous behind a lot of this stuff, and uh, it poses as, uh, you know, something fine, and, uh, you, you know, I mean... Do you have an interest <laughs> in selling your work ever? Uh, I know you well, I do sell my work a lot, uh, but... It's to, it's privately to collectors all over the world. Like I just kind of uh, mm-hmm. have a few people that are, or I should say I don't sell to too many people. But I'm um, there's people I know who or there's uh, who are waiting or want stuff. But um, I just kind of uh, just kind of sell it to a few different collectors over the. Well, I've given a lot of artwork away, which I guess I shouldn't have because I see everyone selling it. <laughs> you know, a lot of more people, like, it's strange. I get really, you know, like, oh, man, that would be cool if I had, like, I could have sold that, but whatever. I don't, I don't, I just kind of take what I need. I, I, I guess when you have a, yeah. you know, you just don't want to, you don't want to tap that, that, that uh, vein too hard with a pickaxe because then, it, you know, whatever spills in your hand you can keep, not what's on the floor or on your feet. So you just take what you need. You don't take more than what you need. I hear that. And, uh... Like I said, though, but I often fantasize. My greatest, you know, biggest thing right now is I, like I said, I really want to just kind of uh, maintain as much of a normal life as possible, and that's just not possible being an artist, you know, doing what I do. It's, uh, so I, I, I've often thought of, like, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, just doing something silly, like, I don't know, getting a job, you know, getting a job <laughs> that, like, just where I go nine to five and then come home and you just do all these normal things. Like, in the sense that, like, if you're, you're too much can... in, in an astral plane, or you're you're too much in the spirit world. You just kind of want to get to something that that makes sense and you can count on. Um, even 
you know, not so much uh, this is what I want to do or this is how I need to make money. It's just, it's an experience, just to sort of a... Uh, have you done that before? Have you done... No, I've never day? had a job. I mean, I'm just, except yeah. for in high school, I, I worked at a pharmacy delivering prescription drugs to, uh, to addicts all over town. <laughs> and you, you just kind of... Uh, that was it. That was cool. That was a good job. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, but that was all I, I, I've ever known of having to go somewhere. And um, for the, the world I live in, or, 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 or the, the places I step in between or go to, it, it just starts to get a little weird. You just kind of, uh, there is a definite point where you can, mm, you know, you can something, I don't know, there's certain uh, territories or certain places you might, visit a, a real life or in your head or wherever where it just seems like it could be dangerous you know you could play around with some dark magic or you can you can just suddenly be wielding uh, something recklessly that you don't know anything about and i find more and more that's where i'm heading is i have to be very careful about what i do at least with the filming you know, i've been filming a lot and that's uh i'm doing it in, i guess in the only way i know how which i know is a little bit different than you know, I don't know traditional or uh, sort of standardized uh regulated way uh, people, the folks in Hollywood do. I, I don't know. It's just, it seems like, though, you're tapping into something maybe you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of wake the Balrog, you know what I mean? And it's like, uh, you know, and then and all at once you just want to get a job at a video store. You just don't want anything to do with the witches or the, because they're real. And you, you start, I don't know how to explain it. You just really... Uh, you get lost in it. Yeah, you get lost in it, and then you start to come in contact with the real deal, with people who are really into that stuff and uh, don't necessarily have your best interests in mind or, you know, they can come disguised as angels and they're not and seem like good people. Uh, and I find that my world becomes a lot more confusing. It means, say, let's hang up the magician's cap and just only use use it to make my shutters green instead of blue or pull a pink bunny rabbit out of hat my daughter's birthday party and let it hop in the woods with a wink or something. You know, just use it to make your life cool. Uh, or normal, or, you know, affect the normalcy, but just, you know, just kind of wink to yourself that you can, you know, maybe do this or that to make your house a little cooler than your neighbors. I don't know. <laughs> you know do you what have I mean? a something... goal in mind with the movie, with the, <clears throat> with the filming? Or yeah, like... yeah, I've been filming for, like, I don't know, geez, eight or nine months now, and it's, uh, uh, we're, 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 we're filming all the time, so downtime or time between filming is very much, uh, getting ready to film again so it's uh i don't have a, 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 a you mean a goal in mind yeah i yeah. want to finish it i'm definitely going to be finishing it we're, we're about we're more than halfway through and uh it's very intense it's a definitely a lifestyle and it's definitely a uh a very cathartic very a, a lot of exorcisms a lot of uh uh very strange occurrences a lot of um Capturing what's really happening, yet at the same time you're telling a story. What's really happening in life with all the people involved is also telling a story. So I kind of set it up so it would allow for, uh, you know, things life to hit you. Meaning, where you kind of use whatever you don't expect that's going to come your way. You kind of use everything. So if something's going to kind of come at you sideways and knock you out, it can't because you can just you can just absorb it. So it, it, it kind of, um, it's a life experiment, really, more than it's actually, I don't know, I guess everything is, but um, I definitely uh, had to stop for a couple of months because it got too weird. It just got, you know, uh, mm. uh, whew, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, but we, yeah, so then you realize why, why the regulations are, are put in place with films. You can literally conjure the devil with it. It's just, 
you have to be careful with that stuff. You could get someone killed. You can uh, prophesize. You can, you know, capture a moment that hasn't happened yet, but will. You can map out what's going to happen to everyone in the film before it happens. It's it's spooky stuff. Um, have so you we're filming, being a little more careful. Have you Sorry, done go filming ahead. before this, um, this recent experience? I've never made a movie. I didn't even plan on making a movie. It just sort of, just sort of very naturally just turned into that. Um, no, I, I just did it to do it. I, I've i always photographed things, and I've always more or less learning from that big numbers experience a long time ago over the years whenever I wanted to do something or put my friends in a comic or when I was going to do something slightly more uh, realistic or representational with characters and what have you. I'd always come use my friends, which have over the years become a cast of characters or a you know, like a theater group or something, and uh, uh, so I've had, I guess I inadvertently began directing stuff a long time ago, so when I started uh, filming, it just seemed like I knew what I was doing, I just seemed to know it, it felt natural, um, but there's so much to learn, and everything you do is different, um, but with the film, uh, it's the kind of thing, once you're in it, you kind of, you, once you're doing it, you really can't stop for better or worse, you just got to see it to its end, and it's, uh... Have you started you know. comicing again? Or are you still uh, yeah, over? yeah, I I do now and again, but um, lately I've been, because, like, like I was saying, when things got weird, we decided to have, like, a few rules about making the movie that made it a lot more uh, professional, or, or <laughs> we didn't really know what we were doing, so it got really spooky, but now we have, you understand why they do put certain regulations in place, and, <laughs> you know what I mean, just a few simple rules about it. So it's allowed me to draw, yeah, like, uh, the, um, well, putting a certain, um, you know, uh, tempering the experience of doing that, it just sort of uh, allows me to uh, have a, a little more calm in my life and a kind of a, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, the, the ability to sit down and draw, even though I know I'm going to film the next day, uh, um, you know, I can sit down and work on stuff, and it kind of fills in the gaps in the downtime. Yeah. And if, it, you know, if you have a couple of days and you're not going to film, why not draw? Sometimes it's hard to to, to uh, slow down the engine that quick, and or not slow down, but re you know, just flip to a different gear or whatever it is. Uh, um, but but I found like when 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 I just kind of uh, sort of you know you just kind of uh, make make the filming experience a little more sane. You you know, now I have more time to draw. Mm -hmm. Are you working uh, on Belladonna or? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, that's finished. I I've just been really really bad about coloring it. <laughs> uh, finishing all the 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 the, the colors is uh, turned out to be an excruciatingly uh, hyper focused task, which I'm not always wanting to do. Um, I guess I get that way when I'm working on a comic. No matter how cool it seemed at first, uh, finishing it just seems pointless to me. I just like, well, who cares? I yeah, I'm sure you know. Maybe someone will like this, but, you know, um, I don't want my whole day to be about this comic page. I, I guess I get more and more like that. I don't want my whole day to be about this uh, feeling. Or uh, The style for it, is it going to be like um, some of the stuff in Moem, like the 5.45 a.m.? Yes, yes, actually, it's uh, it's very much like that. A and lot of the blue uh, hues? Yeah, uh well, I learned after I did the story what the belladonna plant or flower actually is. It's called the deadly nightshade, which is mm -hmm. funny because the whole 
the whole story takes place at night, and there's it's like every conceivable or not, well not every, but you know it's it's a lot of uh, you're playing around with a lot of the the sort of blues and violet or whatever of night, you know, like the colors of night, and there's all different different you know version or, or shades of that, and so it's uh, you'd think that would be easy, just color the whole thing blue, right, <laughs> you know, or something, but. <laughs> It's very subtle difference in, in a certain night. You know, you really want this feeling of night to be coming across, and um, you know, there's different, different. Uh, I don't know how to put it. Uh, but, yeah, it's very complicated uh, color separation work for that. So, you know, I could easily spend a whole day doing three panels or something, so coloring three panels and not even finish those. So, you know, I'm just not ready to go into that sort of uh, chamber, hyper chamber. I'm not ready to, like, slip into that mode yet. Where, because I that's that'd be literally all all I'd be doing for weeks to, to get it done. I'd have to focus on it all the time and get into the rhythm of it in an everyday way. So I tend not to dip into that because weirdly enough, you know, knowing that's all I gotta do is color it and finish it, and I can make a book out of it. Still, coloring it seems to be an enormous waste of energy right now for me. I, I don't see the, you know, I don't. I guess I'm just not as concerned about releasing it as soon as maybe some people would like or I. I will finish it, but um, Who's gonna only when I have like, a couple of weeks to go to a cabin or something and just set up a computer and color it and, yeah, you know, just be in a quiet place. And I know Bonaventure <coughs> was going to be publishing it, but that is a non-existent entity now. Um, yeah, so I, hear, so I hear. Um, yeah. I think he's renamed under Pigeon Press. Um, is your plan. Yeah, see, I didn't know that. I thought I haven't talked to Alvin in a while, and um, I was, uh, I learned, and I guess when I was living in New York recently, that uh, he, he's no more, or the company's no more, which is kind of sad. I liked Alvin a lot. Um, I believe that uh, we are going to, I'm going to publish that with, uh, with, uh, with Jason Levy and uh, uh, Diamond Comics in uh, Portland. We're going to make a little book out of that, and uh, Nice. I think it's a really cool thing out of it, and uh, he's also going to be publishing. I'm, I'm working on a 16-page tabloid-sized full-color pigment fancy. Uh, well, it's it, there'll be chapters, um, and they'll all be that length, you know, 16 pages, uh, full color, and the first one. So those two two comics will be out. I believe we're going to release them at the same time: the Belladonna and the Pigment Fancy. And uh, that's uh, sometime this year, actually. I hope. Cool. <laughs> so, Jason's a good guy. I like him. Yeah, very, very good guy. Yeah, he's he's one of my best friends, and uh, we do a lot of stuff together. Create, we you know, we just we collaborate a lot on uh, a lot of different recordings and different different film uh, projects. And he's a very entrepreneurial, interesting he, fellow. You know, he, he's he's entrepreneurial, but he's not like skeezy entrepreneurial. No, not at all. Not at you all. Know, like you'll meet folks that are entrepreneurial, and it's like this person just sees me as well. Doesn't see me as a dollar sign because I got nothing for anyone. But you can tell when they see someone, they don't see them as a person, but as an object, and you don't get that same, you know. No, I don't think Jason even has that, uh, bon uh, you know, a single thought like that ever. He's just very, uh, he just does what, what I like about it, he just does what he wants to do, and he's just, again, like probably like me, developed a, a sort of lifestyle or, or a work ethic that's just all around what he likes, and you, you figure, or, or what you, you know, he wants to do, he doesn't really... You know, and that's why I, I think I dig him a lot. Is, and what he does is that it, it, it all started that way for him. He didn't really compromise too much and kind of did exactly what he wanted to do. And I think that's important. You should do that because then 
then you kind of, you know, you know, you set a certain rhythm or pattern for yourself, and other people can come to expect that, you know, um, you're gonna you're gonna do your thing. You're not, you know. Um, and he just contacted. Not, not a very corruptible fellow. Sorry. He contacted you out of the blue, right? Just like. Mm-hmm. Totally yeah, and the, I think the reason I went with him is this is sort of like sometimes why I, I make decisions this way. Sometimes where we were talking a lot about the the, uh, the idea of the floating world, you know, the uh, whole mythology of that. Uh, a few days before with some friends, it was strange. He came up and we were talking a lot about that. And then uh, I don't know. The next day he emailed me from Floating World, so I figured, well, that means something, and and it did. It turns out he's just like one. Of, he's one of the greatest guys I know. So. Um, I tend to trust those moments a lot more than maybe most people. I uh, figure they're there for a reason. Um, I maybe do that too much, but sorry. Has that friendship exposed you to some new cartoonists of interest? <laughs> um, I, I know, don't know. I'm just curious if like, you've seen anyone like... Uh, I know he's really into Michael DeForge's work and has published a lot of his stuff in Diamond. Mm. And seeing if you've seen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, certainly with the Diamond comics. Yeah, I've seen a lot of great stuff in that, and uh, definitely met a lot of cool people. And I, uh, I went out and I did some uh, an exhibition there with him, and then I kind of stayed in Portland for a month. And uh, um, Josh Simmons kind of gave me his place, so he was leaving. <laughs> so he said, "Here, take take this uh, apartment I have." And what an apartment! It was like some two thousand square foot, like hardwood floored kind of two bedroom studio apartment. And he wasn't paying anything for it. It was a some strange, uh, uh, you know, Swedish businessman just sort of said, uh, you know, patron of the arts, just sort of uh, let him and this <laughs> other car- cartoonist named Karn live there, but would uh, basically every other day say, well, you, you're not, don't get too comfortable there. So the only drawback to living there was this guy who used to like to play with their heads a bit, and I noticed that when I was staying there, and I couldn't deal with it. I was like, look, I gotta know I'm gonna be here. I'll pay you whatever you need, you know, but I, I, I need to, like, know I'm gonna be in one place, and I'm not gonna have to leave in a month, and... And, you know, they all lived there for years and nothing had happened, so I assumed, all right, well, maybe that'll be the case. But uh, I met a great guy there named Karn Piana, who's a great artist, one of the best, draw- you know, artists I've ever seen. And he does comics, and he did something for Diamond, and I believe even Sammy Harkham, like, pointed pointed him out as being one of his favorite new uh, artists. And uh, Karn's just a great guy. He's definitely somebody people should, like, look out for. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I met a lot of artists when I was out there. I didn't realize Portland had so many cartoonists. <laughs> you know, when I went back out there, I, I didn't realize just like what it had become over the years. I lived out there years before, and very much surprised by the whole scene. And uh, yeah, it's something unique into itself. I, I think, we're coming to an end. We've been yakking for just over two hours now. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. Thank you for taking the time with me today, Al. Yeah, no problem. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, you too, man. One, two, one, two, three.